Hey everyone, before we get into That's What G Said podcast, I want to let you know about one of our sponsors, that's Sarah Candle Company. Their website is sarahcandles.com. They have a really good Mother's Day deal going on right now. If you buy one candle, you get the second candle 33% off. So go right now, check it out. If you're someone that likes candles, it's a great opportunity. You get a couple. These are not just your normal candles that you're going to find anywhere else. They are 100% soy wax. They've eliminated all of those toxins, all of those pollutants, all of those carcinogens because they have soy wax. And because of the wicks that they use, they're actually able to burn 30 to 50% longer than the, the paraffin wax candles that you see in all of the, the bigger companies. I know these people personally. Um, I love these candles. I've been using them now for the last few months. They are excellent. Sarah candles.com c-e-r-a candles.com go check them out one of my favorite scents is fresh roses they also have a delmar scent i mean tons of different uh scents sizes for you to choose from this is a small business so give them some support right now get something nice for one of your uh mothers one of your uh uh, friends, one of uh, a pet mother, an aunt, uh, someone that you know in your family that would uh, enjoy one of these candles check them out sarahcandles.com Wednesday, May the 6th, 2020. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of That's What G Said Podcast. Uh, Hope everyone's staying safe out there and all doing well as we start to look around the sports world and and really just the world in general and restrictions are being lifted in many places and uh, we're starting to see some semblance of sports coming back. It looks like a lot of these racetracks are reopening. We're going to have a ton of horse racing news to talk about today. Also going to recap the last couple episodes of The Last Dance, episodes 5 and 6, and then we'll give you some thoughts on Gulfstream Park for Thursday and for Friday, and then Tampa for Friday, a couple plays over there, and then we recap SummerSlam 1992 with Jason Beam and Danny Kovalov. So lots of uh, different things to talk about here. That's, those are my favorite show. That's what, that's the, that's what this show is about. It's a, it's a variety show. We try to talk as much as sports and anything, you know, pop culture, movies, TVs that uh, TV shows that we're interested in keeps, you know, most people interested in the show. And uh, we're able to, you know, with no real worry about time, we can, you know, cut out long shows where we uh, are able to bring on guests or talk about each topic and we don't have to really just buzz right by it. So love when we get the chance to do that and uh, we will do that again on this episode. We're going to start with just uh, one of uh, a show that I loved over the last couple of years. I watched with uh, with Stephanie. We liked Parks and Rec. And if you didn't, if you were someone that's a fan of Parks and Rec, it's not really like a spoiler. They had a little special recently, and it was really cool. It was a special to raise money for, uh, for Feeding America. And 
what they did was they were all in character, and it was really fun. If you watch the show, if you like the show, this was very fan-serving. We got a lot of inside jokes. It basically just started with Leslie and Ben, and they were on a kind of like a Zoom call, and they just basically they had a phone tree with all of the characters, you know, all of your favorite characters through the year. We really got a chance to see basically everyone. Um, they did a great job, you know, staying you know true to the characters that we've known. Lots of fun, lots of laughs. Um, Leslie would they were playing off the coronavirus, you know, like reality, but just playing it in their characters. Leslie was checking in with everyone, making sure they were. Uh, safe and maintaining social distancing, and uh, we got to see everyone on their little uh, little setups at home, and just a ton of fun. If you were a fan, go check this out; uh, you'll enjoy it. It was uh, it makes you smile, and and then at the end, everyone you know gets on together, and they all uh, they all sing the little Sebastian song. Your five thousand candles in the wind. Good old Ron. Ron set that whole thing up. So. Yeah, I mean, we got the Cones of Dunshire reference. We got some funny check-ins with everyone. Nobody wanted to call Gary. Tom's got these crazy ideas for teeny tiny iPads for each finger. Um, Lots of Pawnee talk. They checked in with a lot of different characters from the show. Joan, Dr. Uh, uh, Per, Dr. Jeremy Jam. And then, of course, uh, Jean Raffia steals the show, like always. He just got run over by a Porsche. He's got tons of money, uh... To buy uh, uh, to buy airtime, so he buys a commercial just to give out his phone number because he's bored throughout all of this. He just got kicked off Cameo for doing some of his videos naked. Really fun Parks and Rec special. We're seeing a lot of uh, you know different shows kind of doing doing little specials, doing little things to try to raise money and to try to uh, serve some of the fans out there because we know this is a, a time where a lot of there's no sports going on. A lot of production has halted on movies, TV shows going forward. So anything that we can do, even if they get a little creative and, and do things like this on, on Skype and, and try to think a little bit outside of the box or you know whatever whatever they were using, I thought this was a ton of fun. Let's get into the Last Dance. Let's talk a little NBA, and we'll jump right on over and talk about episodes five and six from the Last Dance. So we pick up um, at the 98 All-Star Game, and it's really sad because uh, we see Kobe uh, right away. Tons of Kobe, 19 years old. He's in the, on the Western Conference All-Star team, and then all the guys on the Eastern Conference All-Star team were kind of in the locker room with them. They're coached by Larry Bird, and they're kind of razzing Kobe a little bit, right? He's the young guy. So that little Laker boy is going to take everyone one-on-one. If I was his team man, I wouldn't pass him the effing ball. And that was a MJ. And but you could tell they know he's got some. He's got that little something. But they're definitely Trent telling him it's not your time quite yet. Not your time quite yet, the little Laker man. Um, then Magic Johnson comes in to talk to them. We see Magic throughout this this episode a lot. Magic in '98, Magic in '92. He just talks a ton of trash to to MJ to, to Michael Jordan. Magic and MJ they get they go back and forth at each other. It's it's playful for the most part, but you know how that is. Is like when you have that relationship with someone, there's always going to be those times where it escalates and you, and and somebody gets pissed off. And um, Larry has some fun with them, but he doesn't really get into it as much as, as those two seem to. Um, and then we actually see Kobe. He whenever he he had com- he's on the documentary with recent comments. Whenever these were, you know, either you know in the last year, year and a half, um, twenty nineteen uh, probably. So. Pretty surreal to see 
a recent Kobe um, talking about, uh, you know, all this and how he had to learn and it was hard for him because the league was a lot older and, and MJ helped him when he asked for him for some help. He helped him with his turnaround and he said he felt like MJ was a big brother and he said he hated the people that would ask him if he could beat MJ one-on-one because he said, I'm not here without Michael Jordan. Like, I'm modeling myself after him, you know, and uh, and so he kind of, you know, he that was that was who he held up and and, and wanted to embody, and he did a, he did a damn good job. Um, we see Michael Jordan talking trash with Peyton. This is a fun one. There's lots of trash talk going on here, and this was supposed to be Michael's last All Star game. He he scores 23 points. He's the All Star MVP. Kobe has 18, and and then we get back into the season, and it's it's MJ's final game at Madison Square Garden. So he's wearing his original. Uh, Air Jordans from 1984 and we go back to 1984 we hear from his agency they wanted to make him an individual in a team sport more like a golfer or a tennis player so they go to meet um, and and discuss shoes they they talk to Converse who's the big the big company at the day they had Magic Larry and they didn't think Michael was going to be as big of a star as the others or a main focus of theirs so Michael wanted Adidas, but they weren't very organized. They couldn't make a deal work at the time. And so they looked to Nike, and Nike really wanted MJ. And they're at this point just a track shoe. So Michael didn't really want anything to do with them. So his mom forced him to go to meet with them. They give him a huge pitch. They make a huge offer for his own shoe with this new technology, with air soles. They're going to call it the Air Jordan. And their goal was sell $3 million worth uh, $3 million worth by year four, and in year one, they sold $126 million. And this shoe, having this shoe, it became like a cultural thing. It was a status thing. Um, it made you like him. You know, they even had later on the, if I could be like Mike, Spike Lee produced the commercials. And um, and one thing about this documentary, it bounces back and forth a lot, and, and some people like it, some don't. I like it. It doesn't bother me at all because it's it's – you can kind of see what it's doing. It's on a timeline, and it's kind of discussing things past, present, back, forth, back, forth. So um, when Michael's you know, wearing these old shoes in Madison Square Garden in 98, these shoes are from 84, remember? His feet are bleeding at halftime, but he doesn't want to take them off because he's playing well, and this is kind of like a big uh, big sort of promotional thing for, uh, for Nike. He's talking trash to Spike Lee. He's talking smack to Patrick Ewing after the game. There's a lot of smack talk in these uh, in these couple episodes. And uh, now we're in 92, and they're looking for back-to-back championships. And after that first one, it kind of seemed like this was when the Bulls really figured things out. MJ's in his absolute prime on both ends of the floor, getting people involved all over. They uh, end up facing Portland in the finals. And then you start to get... Clyde Drexler was a star for Portland that year And he was one of the best players in the league also But again, nobody was really in the conversation with Michael And so leading up to the series When they're both going to be playing each other in the finals Obviously you get those comparisons, right? Michael versus Clyde And uh, MJ took that as a slight He said he respected Clyde But he said he was nowhere in his league And he wanted to go after Clyde so he he tells Magic Johnson the night before that he's gonna do that. The Bulls win this series four to two for their second straight title, and and this is when things start to turn for for Michael because he still feels like he's having fun at at this point for the most part. 
He still feels like he's having a good time. He's enjoying where he is. And that's right when it leads into he wins his second straight title. And then just a few weeks later, or just like a week and a half later, he goes to the Olympics and the Dream Team. And it's the first time that they're having all the professional basketball players team up together. So they have this stacked team, except for Isaiah Thomas, because Michael hates Isaiah. You know, you, you see things in this documentary that, you know, MJ probably isn't telling us 100% the truth on some of the things that maybe protect him a little bit. This is probably one of them. I for sure think that he blackballed uh, Isaiah Thomas by not letting him get on the team. Who He was good enough, but Isaiah was kind of an ass to a lot of people. He got into it too with a lot of people. Those Detroit teams got into it with a lot of people. And Michael said that the, the camaraderie on the team was great. They have fun. They joked, talked about him and Magic and Larry and all those guys. And it would have been a different vibe with Isaiah around. So... You know, Magic is in this episode a lot, and he he said, you know, with Michael, one thing you saw about him too, they would play cards every night, and he just, he didn't want to just beat you, it wasn't just for fun to pass the time, he wanted to crush you, he wanted to get in your head, he wanted to take all your money. We get footage of this legendary practice game in Monte Carlo, where there's a scrimmage between um, between the Dream Team. And Magic's on one team, and Barkley's on Magic's team, and then uh, MJ's on the other team. And Magic's team's domina- dominating early. They said they're up about eight, eight points or so. And then uh, Magic's really talking trash. Barkley's really talking trash. Um, Magic goes up to, to Michael. He kind of taps him. He says, you better turn into Air Jordan or we're going to crush you. And uh, and then MJ just turns it on. He flips the switch. He goes on a crazy run. Magic's frustrated. He ends up tossing the ball into the empty stands. They all know at this point, like they knew it, but until you're seeing it against the best of the best in a situation like this where Michael was able to just play with them, that they knew he was the man. He was the alpha alpha, the best of the best. So in this 92 Dream Team run, in the 92 Olympics, they have to play the Croatian team who is you know, thought about as a, a big powerhouse team. And uh, a team that you know has an, has an opportunity to, to possibly beat the U.S. team, and it's all about Tony Kukoc, who was the star. He was drafted by the Bulls in 1990, and his country was in civil war during that time. So he ends up staying there for a few extra years. He's making a lot more money there, and so there's some bitter feelings from the Bulls. He doesn't come to play with them when he gets drafted second overall, and he is a player that. You know, Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan, they've never met. They don't really know anything about him. But all they know about him is that Krause, Jerry Krause, is super high on him. He always mentions Kukoc. He's always talking about Kukoc. He's, he, you know, and, and they, they hate hearing this. They have to hear about this from this guy who decided to not come play with them. I don't think they really are comprehending the war stuff and understanding why he doesn't come over. And so when they are matched up with him for the first time, in the 92 Olympics, Michael and, and Scotty, they they are like they're circling him and they have a plan to shut this guy down. And they tell everyone, you leave Kukoc to us. And uh, he said, Kukoc said he was not ready for it. He was not ready for their level of defense. He was held to four points and Croatia lost by 33. And this was the first time he met those future Bulls teammates and they did not have great impressions of each other all around. And uh, 
They end up playing again in the finals Kukoc actually comes back, he plays much better But they still end up getting crushed by the USA There was no team that would have ever been able to keep up with the talent level of that dream team Although uh, there was an incident at the end, it wasn't rosy um, Michael, being a big Nike guy, didn't want to show the Reebok logo Which he had on his jersey Because they were the sponsors of uh, Team USA so he drapes an American flag over him, over the logo So that way when they're in the celebration they can't see And so obviously this rubs some people the wrong way um, But it, you know what? Michael is so big he's a global star now After the Olympics He's now won back-to-back titles He's now won an Olympic gold medal He was He's basically become the face of basketball The face of the NBA And now people all over the world got the chance to see Michael And... And that you know that's when the the if I could be like Mike stuff really blows up. But like anything, the bigger the star you are, there's always going to be nobody's perfect. Everyone's going to have some issues and indiscretion here or there. There's going to be something that um, that you know makes you human. And um, there were a couple things that were discussed. First off, uh, politics. Like he didn't. Michael Jordan did not like. Be, he didn't really speak and, get, and and be very opinionated on a whole lot Other than basketball, right? That's that's really all we heard And that's all he wanted He didn't want to be a role model He said that He said he, he For him, he wasn't thinking about causes He's not an activist He's not involved in politics He just wanted to be the best basketball player in the world That's That's what drove him And so he was not like you know Muhammad Ali, or he's not like um, even nowadays. You hear LeBron, or you hear some some players or or coaches um, not afraid to speak out about issues. He he was never that way, ever. And he you know the famous quote was, um, you know Republicans buy Nike too. There was a a specific incident with um, Harvey Gant who was running for Senate, and MJ wouldn't endorse him. And he was attempting to become the, the state's first black senator in North Carolina. And he was running against a long-time, really racist, kind of a bad guy. And MJ wouldn't stand up against him when his mom had a- asked. And um, he just he didn't want to be controversial. And he didn't want to speak about someone or something that he didn't know. Which I really... It's funny. People will say, oh yeah, well that's a money thing. But I, and, and I can... And, I, and sure, right? He didn't, want to, he didn't want to piss off the Republicans by saying going one way. But... I try to do that Like I'm not really into politics whatsoever That's why with all this corona stuff right now It's like everything's become so political And I I'm, I have like zero political ties I have zero interest in, in like anything I've just never been like a political type person So you don't hear me talk a whole lot about it Because it just wouldn't make sense I'm not very informed and I don't really care So I, I can respect someone who was like You know what I'm not gonna go represent someone or something That I don't know a whole lot about now, if someone was really close to him and he and he would have, you know, kind of shunned them, maybe that would be a different story. But I don't know. It just that doesn't bother me a whole heck of a lot. Um, stand up for something that you believe in. If it's not something you believe in, it's kind of hard to really stand up for it, right? Or if it's not something you know a whole heck of a lot about. His energy was in being the best basketball player ever. But but this is something that changes image with a lot of people. Even Obama talks about it. Others they negatively um, they looked at him negatively for not being like more active for the black community or using his voice um, for you know major to you know speak out on major causes. We jump back now to 1998, 
and talking about how this final run, like the tickets for the final run, were impossible to get. They're breaking records in the Georgia Dome with over 62,000 people there. Uh, they said they could have sold another 15,000 tickets if need be. You, you got Gary Sinise, Bette Midler, Jerry Rice, Danny DeVito, Sinbad, Dr. Dre, Chris Rock, Drew Barrymore, Wayne Gretzky, John Cusack, Spite Lee. Prince, Jerry Seinfeld goes into the locker room, he's talking to the team back there just like they're all buddies um, and that's, you know, how season, uh, episode 5 ends as we get on to episode 6 where, you know, MJ's now just gone through the Dream Team, the Olympics and it's into se- the, the 93 season and he's he's tired now, he's a little worn down, he's not coming off There there's some things out there now um, he's the most recognizable face in the world. He has to kind of be confined uh, more more than ever before. And there are, is a book, The Jordan Rules, that comes out. It talks about Jordan fighting with his teammates, how some of them maybe didn't love him, how he threatened players to ice them out, not to pass them the ball. He punched Will Perdue. He wanted to get Krause fired. Um, MJ says it was Horace Grant that gave... All of this information to Sam Smith Horace said it was not him But people thought so because Sam Smith and him were friends Um, Some of the other players felt like It it had to be more than one person Because there were so many different stories From different places that it couldn't have just been one person Giving them all this information And and the book is wildly popular So the writer, Sam Smith, of course You write a book about a a major popular figure Like this, he's getting threats Um, He was attacked for loving You know, uh, um, for going after Such a beloved player and this is stuff that's starting to imp- impact MJ off the court. Not necessarily on the court, though. We um, we get a really funny uh, scene in 98 when MJ is betting with the security guys from the United Center. And they're tossing quarters on the carpet. And it, it's just great. They've got this little game set up. And there's this one goofy guy who is just taking MJ's money and he's kind of trash talking him afterwards. It is so great. Um, and we kind of get a, lot, a little more into Michael's gambling. He plays big money cards in the back of the bus. He would come up front and just take the money of the little guys just so he could have their money in his pocket. He's crazy competitive. And he mentions that later. He says he doesn't have a gambling problem, he has a competition problem. So at the end of 98, they're. Uh, they're at 60 and 18, and the guys are all having a beer in the locker room afterwards. MJ, Scotty, Ron Harper. Scotty tells the, the people filming to stop filming. Harper doesn't care what they do. And MJ says that 10 years ago they were drinking a case and smoking cigs at halftime. Not necessarily him, I guess, but that's what he says. And uh, he said they were getting the cigarettes from the coaches. But they are having some fun. And they're finishing up their season before their their big 98 playoff run. So before they go for uh, that finals run in 98, we go back to 93 where they're going for the three-peat. And their big rival in 93 was the Knicks. This The Knicks were kind of like the Pistons. They were really physical. They kind of beat you up a little bit. They made it difficult on you. So it's the Knicks versus the Bulls in the conference finals. Uh, the Knicks win game one in New York. MJ was awful in the second half The Knicks then win game 2 And after the game It comes out that Michael Jordan Went to Atlantic City the night before game 2 He went with his dad Said he was back at 12.30 Some people said they saw him there at 2.30 Um, But what 
when they lost that second game, now of course the reporters are starting to bring it up because Michael hadn't really played well in either of the first two games, and this was another story involving gambling. He had already had some history coming up with gambling stories. He had previous gambling ties to Slim Bowler, who was a golf hustler, a real shady kind of character. And Michael actually had to testify on a case and admit that he paid the man for gambling. He had a check written out to him. Initially, Michael said that he gave him a loan, but then when he had to testify, he said no, it it was actually for a gambling debt. And at this point, you know, Michael also has a book written about him called Michael and Me, Our Gambling Addiction, written by uh, Richard Esquinas, who writes a book about how Michael was down over a million to him in golf and in cards and... Commissioner David Stern actually talked to MJ about it, and he said, you know, I I didn't feel that Michael was ever in trouble financially. He makes so much more money than everyone else. He's betting a lot more money, but to to him, that's not nearly as much as it would be to to anyone else, right? So this is where Michael says he has a competition problem, not a gambling problem. And he started to get um, fed up with the media at this point. He's shutting them out, and his dad's actually talking to the media for him in, in some places. So after that whole Atlantic City debacle, game two, they lose. All the media is pissed. They're saying that Jordan doesn't care anymore and that he doesn't want to win anymore. He comes back. He dominates. They tie it up 2-2. Then they win game five by one. Then they win game six, four straight. The team took it personally. They played really hard for MJ. And now they are on to the finals again for a third straight year in 93. In 98... Getting ready to go to uh, the playoffs, trying to get to the finals for another third straight year. And this time in 98, we see MJ and Harper and Scotty, they're golfing and they're kind of having fun. They're relaxing. And, and Michael says, you know, Phil, Phil knows that we need to get, get it right, get mentally right before the big run. Towards the end of this episode six, we get the, uh, the 93 finals now. So it's the Bulls. They got, they got past the Knicks in the Eastern Conference Finals. Now they're in the Finals. They're playing against uh, Barkley and the Suns. Barkley was the MVP this year. And that kind of bothered MJ a little bit. He, he, he felt a little slighted. He wanted to be the MVP every year. He wants to win everything. But before Game 1, MJ does an interview with Ahmad Rashad. It's weird, though, because he does it with sunglasses on. And he talks about his gambling not being a problem. He actually even mentions that he could leave the NBA soon. He's kind of fed up with everything. Another um, little chip on Michael's shoulder. He just created all these these things to motivate him. Dan Marley was someone that Jerry Krause was really high on. So Michael wanted to go right at Dan Marley. Uh, Krause thought he was a really good defensive player. MJ attacks him. And the Bulls win, their first two game, uh, win the first two games of the series in Phoenix. Barkley actually said he played as well as he could have possibly p- played and they lost. In game two And he said that was the first time he felt like He maybe wasn't the best player in the world So game three The Suns actually win in Chicago It's triple overtime Game four, Michael scores 55 They're now up 3-1 to And in game five The Bulls fans are all celebrating Everyone's kind of acting like this series is over And that really pissed off the Suns And that, that motivated them So they end up Winning that game so now it's game six. The Bulls are having to go back to Phoenix. They're actually down four with 40 seconds left. Michael hits a layup. And then Paxson nails a three to win it at the buzzer. And this win, this third win in 93, 
This was more like of a relief. You didn't see the happy MJ. He's you know he was obviously happy to win, but he he wasn't showing that emotion as much as he was showing the relief of everything he went through all year, the gambling stuff, the ups, the downs, the book coming out, all the like the negative publicity about him. And, uh, and then we get the Bulls finishing the 98 season tied for their best record. So uh, a tied for best record in the league. They have a first round matchup against the New Jersey Nets. And MJ saying he's not sure if he's going to miss it when he leaves. He's tired. So next up, we'll end up getting, you know, the the start the start of the run through the '98 playoffs, and then we'll I'm sure we'll go back now to you know Michael leaving basketball to go to play baseball, and then his return in the next few episodes. Still four episodes left, so two each of the next two weeks. I'm really enjoying this. It's entertaining. You know, we got to take it with a grain of salt, right? Like, not everything that is said in here is gospel. You know, when when somebody talks, they probably have, uh, you know, memories that might be a little slighted one way or the other, or, you know, their discussions might be something that kind of makes them come off a little bit better. But it's fun to hear these stories. It's fun to hear Michael react as someone who hasn't been, you know, the most vocal all the time. Let's uh, get on over to horse racing. There is a lot to talk about in horse racing right now. Um, Lots of major news. How about Oaklawn Park, who finished up their meet on Saturday with the two Arkansas Derby races? They handled $41 million. Their previous high was $19 million, which was April the 18th, a few weeks ago. Prior to that, their previous high was $16.9 million, which was April 11th. And their previous high before this year was in 2019 the rebel when they had 16.2 million they were up to 41 million in handle that is unbelievable and they had a massive day i mean we saw just to quickly through some of the results that we saw on um saturday from last week a really good race in the fifth race where we had endorsed who was coming out of the big cap he ends up winning and defeating Bankit. pirate punch was in that race long range toddy rated our superstar like that was a legitimately good group of, uh, of horses in an allowance race And you'll see a bunch of those horses show up in stakes races next time Hunt the front Won in a really nice maiden race Defeated Friars Road who had a little bit of traffic trouble And maybe not the greatest of trips So Hunt the front Probably one that will we'll jump into a, a 3 year old stakes race Somewhere pretty soon In the 7th race we saw two really nice fillies Gamine and Speech there was a weird buyer speed figure contra- uh, conspiracy with them, but these top two are legitimate. They're very, very good. Keep an eye on those two moving forward. A horse named Moretti got back into the winner's circle in the eighth. I was super high on him last year, and he just kind of has had some issues. And I th- maybe he's the kind of horse who just needed to get a little bit older, grow up. He doesn't have a whole lot of like early speed. He's kind of like a little grindy, but he ran really well in here, and he got himself back into the winner's circle. Then there was a weird race in the ninth where you have a horse like Dumpf who shows massive improvement first off the claim for uh, the leading barn at the meet. He was a 57-1 to winner, and if you follow Craig Milkowski, he was tweeting uh, recently about how it was a pretty crazy jump up for a horse like that, and you got to kind of scratch your head sometimes when you see horses improving that much. Um, it, it, it sometimes is one of those, hmm. Um, long shots win all the time. This one just it seemed a little weird. In race number 10, I mean, just, just a loaded card. Rushy wins this one. Candy Tycoon was second. Background was one of my plays. And you know what? Background ran really well. He finished third. Absolutely no excuses for background um, that day. 
on, on Saturday. He just probably not as good as the top two. Then we got into Arkansas Derby number one, and we saw Charlatan. And when, when Shooter Shoot scratched in here, it just looked like there was no other speed to push Charlatan early on. Charlatan draws the rail. He was very good. He was very impressive. He wins. He earns a buyer speed figure of 96. And he beat Basin. And Basin was really good. He was the only horse. He broke well, and he tried his best to, to press Charlatan to make a little bit of a race out of it. But it was just too easy for Charlatan up front. He was flying through fractions. But, you know, I'm more of a watch the race than, than a time person in general. And what I mean by that is sometimes it's easier to go a little faster when there's nobody chasing you, right? You can just kind of open up and get real, real comfortable. When there's others pressing you, you can even be going slower and the race is more difficult because you're dealing with all that pressure. So, Basin ran awesome um, for second. Governor Morris was third, winning impression was fourth, and New Door was was fifth in here. But uh, Charlatan, undefeated, really untested so far. And I mean, he has to be considered on that very, very top tier right now with the three Baffert horses and Tis the Law. Those look like the horses that are the top, top tier right now. And again, a lot's going to change because we're not going to be having a Kentucky Derby, it looks like, until September. But racetracks will be opening back up and we're going to get to a lot of that news in just a second. The Oaklawn Handicap was in race number 12 by my standards. So impressive. He sat nicely from the outside. He just breaks so well, and then you can place him anywhere. He's that kind of handy horse who always makes his own trip. Warriors charged at the pace, ran well. Mr. Freeze uh, also showed up with a good effort. And then Tacitus, you know, is kind of late on the scene. He actually did run pretty well in here, too. This was a strong group. Improbable scratched uh, before the race, so um, we didn't get to see Improbable where he, you know, would have taken a lot of money and would have been another very live contender in that one. And then we got the second Arkansas Derby, and Nadal is my favorite um, right now. The three-year-olds, he proved that he can sit off the pace now if he he has to, and he, he didn't sit far, but Wells Bayou just flies from the outside. And Nadal breaks it like a step slow, but then he moves nicely right up in. He presses him. He goes, you know, he just responded to, to all his, every time when he was asked, he responded to go after him. He responded to sitting. He opened up. And then late in the in the stretch, when it looked like he was going to get challenged from King Guillermo and Finnick the Fierce, he just had another gear that he kicks, that he kicks onto. He really feels like he's just kind of playing around with them, you know, out there. And to me... He seems a little more seasoned and a little more versatile than Charlatan. And he actually got the better um, you know, speed figure than Charlatan in this race from a buyer standpoint. I'm, I'm not massive on the buyer, you know. I'm, I'm not I, I like to use the speed figures to complement the handicapping instead of just using a speed figure as like an end all be all. Um Farmington Road was fourth in here. Storm the court, silver prospector. They'll probably have to uh Maybe figure figure things out and rethink things. I personally think Silver's probably both of them. I think Silver Prospector would be a really good miler. He just never seemed to me like even when he would run well, he'd kind of hit the front and then idle a little bit and stop. I don't know how far he wanted to go, and and it kind of feels that way with Storm the Court now too. Maybe he's best if you cut him back to a mile or seven furlongs. Um, so we'll see what the plans will be for them moving forward. Next week we're gonna do a full preview of the current. Point standings. We'll go through like maybe the top 30 or 43 year olds. We'll talk about what some of their plans are. I was going to do it this week, but 
since a lot of these racetracks are just opening back up, they're starting to put their stake schedules out there now, and they're starting to figure out where some of these Kentucky Derby points races and the next round of preps are going to be. So I think if we wait a few more days, we'll be able to get an idea of you know better plans for a lot of these horses who these trainers are just kind of sitting like we are. They're waiting to get information right now. They don't know a- anything. So once these tracks start to open back up, which looks like a few of them for- on the 14th or 15th of May, then we'll you know we'll really get a good idea of okay when are these big stakes races coming and or we we kind of know when they're coming we just don't really know who is going to be going to them quite yet at Oaklawn the meet ended with uh, Robertino Diodoro as your winning trainer Asmussen was second in wins uh, Brad Cox was third Juan Moquette was fourth and John Sadler was fifth and Diodoro hit at twenty two percent. John Sadler had a really good meeting. He hit at 23%. Baffert won with 9 of his 15 starters. He won at 60%. Hollendorfer uh, had 12 winners at the meeting also. Um, he, had, he had a decent meet. On the jockey side there at Oaklawn, I said it to the sounds of the guitar, baby. Played by Ricardo Santana Jr. He was your leading jock with 60 Wins, Martin Garcia was second with 55, Joe Talamo was third with 53, David Cohen was fourth with 44, uh, Mojica, Orlando Mojica had 37 wins, Walter De La Cruz had 33, Tyler Bays had 29, Fernando De La Cruz had 22, and Stuart Elliott had 20, and Martin Garcia riding at 19% right there with Ricardo Santana Jr., they both had really good meets, Talamo had a great meet, good meet for Bays, uh, you saw a lot of these Connections that we, you know, became familiar with from Southern California when they they weren't racing out here, they, or even because the way that the the fields and the the landscape had had changed the last couple of years, not a lot of races, not a lot of opportunities. Good to see Garcia and Talamo and Bay's doing well. Uh, Rosario he won 17 races in his 45 mounts. He won at 38 percent, and what's funny is it still felt like there were a lot. He, he there were some that he probably left on the track, right? Uh, because that's what happens when you ride so many live horses. It feels like some days you have three or four bat rides and you end up winning three or four races anyway. So, um, Joel with a, a monster Oaklawn meeting. Uh, Florence Rue won five out of his 27, and Gabe Saez won a couple there. He was only uh, there for four races, but he did pick up a couple wins. Let's talk a little bit more about the uh, the news in racing, and then we'll get into uh, some handicapping for Thursday and for Friday. So, the per race handle in April, I mean, this is going to be obvious, right? Rose 164%. U.S. racetracks only held 746 races, which was down 71% from last year because, you know, all these tracks are closed from the virus. But the race per, per race handle at the few tracks that were open was up 164%. So total handle only... I say only, it dropped 25.4% in April compared to April last year, but there were two dozen tracks open, including Santa Anita, Keeneland, Belmont, which did not race at all during the month, and the total number of April races dropped from 2,612 to 746, and the the purses were down, they were down to to, uh, 79%, the average handle per race was up a ton, a ton. The average fuel size also jumps a ton, up to over nine horses per race. So for the whole year, total handle has declined 
and the number of races have declined 25.7%. Some news came out a little earlier that said, it looks like the Preakness is going to be run October 3rd. Then that news has been rebutted and said there still could be a couple other dates, so they're still looking, but keep that date in, in your mind. It might be October 3rd. It might be earlier as a date. They try to re-schedule um, the Preakness. Santa Anita. They need approvals to reopen on May 15th, but they put out a condition book. They're hoping to run behind closed doors once the uh, the safe at home man safer at home mandate ends, um, or they become declared more of an essential business. Racing would continue Friday, Saturday, Sunday, along with Memorial Day Monday, and there would be eight stakes races coming up um, in this first condition book that we see. Uh, you'd have the Echo Eddie, the Evening Jewel on May the 16th, May the 17th, the Desert Stormer. You got the Daytona Stakes, the Charlie Whittingham, the Monrovia, the Shoemaker Mile, and the Gamely. And then it looks like the Saturday, uh, June 6th date would be the day for the Santa Anita Derby to be rescheduled. And it will be a Kentucky Derby qualifying race, most likely a 100 points to the winner, 40 to second, 20 to third, 10 to fourth. Um, and a win in your or a win in your in qualifier for the Derby, which basically it, it would be a win in your in qualifier. So that June sixth day would be like the big day where you'd probably get the Santa Anita Derby, the Gold Cup, the Santa Anita Oaks, um, some of that information from Ron Flatter that we saw on Twitter. He, he was I think one of the first that that was posting it. So the racetrack, upon reopening, has devised several further social distancing measures. Um, and has also proposed even having its jockeys live in housing at the track. So on Wednesday, they're actually going to do a run-through and practice their new protocols. Um, horses brought into the receiving barn will be saddled and led to the track. They will be led on a path to the walking ring, transferring to grooms. Jockeys will mount in the walking ring. No saddling enclosure. Um, no winter circle ceremonies. So they're, they're making... The adjustments at Santa Anita, they want to get rocking and rolling very soon. They just need to get the uh, the okay and hope that they're ready uh, to start back up on May the 15th. Churchill Downs has released its first condition book of races for 2020. Opening day will be Saturday, May the 16th. They're going to run Thursday through Sunday, holiday Monday on Memorial Day, also May the 25th. Closing day will be June the 27th. It's a 26-day spring meeting, 125 races will be run, uh, 125 races are offered in the first condition book, which is from May 16th to June the 5th. Stakes schedule, 16 stakes, totaling 2.25 million, and they begin on Saturday, with uh, Saturday, May the 23rd, with the Matt Win grade 3, and it's going to be getting some Kentucky Derby points. It uh, 10 points to the winner, 4 to 2nd, 2 to 3rd, and 1 for the 4th place finisher. Um, so that Saturday, May 23rd will be the first big stakes race. You'll have the Blame Stakes, the, the Shawnee. You'll have the War Chant and the Tep-In also. So these meets now are going to be condensed, and they're going to be really, really stacked. Mar- uh, May 30th, you'll get the Old Forester Mint Julep. You'll get the Winning Colors. Saturday, June 6th at Churchill, you'll get the Aristides, and you'll get the uh, the Dogwood. Um, on, the June, on June the 13th, you'll get the Louisville. On June the 20th, you'll get the Wise Dan. 
and the Audubon, and then on Sunday, June the 27th, that's the, uh, the big day where you get the Stephen Foster, the Florida Lee, the Regret, and the Bashford Manor. And their stable areas have opened in kind of a phased way. They let the horses from Fairgrounds come in May 11th, 12th, 13th. Then they get the horses from Gulfstream Park and from Tampa horses, Florida-based horses, May 14th, 15th, 16th. Then they let the Oaklawn Park horses come in uh, 17, 18, 19, and then all others on May the 20th. So they're bringing them in little by little, and Churchill Downs should be up and running in uh, in just a few weeks. We and the the Stephen Foster and the Fleur de Lee are. Part of the Breeders' Cup win and you're in. Ten graded stakes races of those 16. Um, anything else from Churchill? No, not that. Churchill, they'll be up in a, you know, up, up soon. Monmouth Park, they want to get the ball rolling. Monmouth Park in New Jersey, they will run 35 stakes races after the delayed meet. Um, they're going to reopen on July 3rd. The Haskell, scheduled for July the 18th, plus the United Nations, so they will have two grade ones on that card, as well as the Monmouth Cup, the Molly Pictor, and the Matchmaker Stakes. Again, another, you know, meet that's going to be kind of crunched down. They will, this year, the Mile and an Eighth Haskell will be content, uh, contested as a stakes race. Nominations closing on June the 26th. They have developed plans to ensure safety of the staff, horsemen, and fans. These, and quote, said the plans will be fluid and continuously be monitored and updated as necessary. Our protocols will address racing with or without fans will be in effect as soon as horses return to Oceanport. All plans are subject to the governor's approval and will continue to take our cues from his office. Governor Murphy has shown exceptional leadership through this crisis. This was a, a quote from uh, Dennis Drazen. So Monmouth season, 37 live racing days, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. They're going to be running from July 3rd through July uh, through September the 27th. They'll have a late post time on Friday of 5 p.m. Eastern time. All other days, 12.50 p.m. Eastern time. Haskell will be uh, at noon. And their stable area will be set to open on June the 1st. They have that little um, incentive for trainers stabled on the grounds. Um, all trainers guaranteed $300 per starter with owners assured 500 per runner. So you can check out that full stake schedule there with uh, a lot of the familiar stakes there. Um, as I mentioned, the big day would be July the 18th with all those stakes, and then you'll get the Monmouth Oaks in August. You'll get the uh, the Eatontown in August, the Philip Islin um, later there, the Red Bank too into September. So you'll see a lot of those familiar stakes. Charlestown and Mountaineer they're they're getting set to run again um, April 30 announcement said uh, they would allow the resumption of horse racing without spectators at Hollywood Casino at Charlestown races they will attempt to resume live racing on May the 14th Mountaineer Park plans to begin racing on May the 31st in addition to conducting races without spectators Charlestown will continue to its live racing under a set of protocols developed to protect the health and safety of those present so until further notice, Charlestown's receiving barn uh, is closed. They are only allowing those stable in West Virginia and West Virginia breds at the moment. They are going to have to have protocols for trainers that don't have char- uh, stalls at Charlestown, and they'll be specifically you know, dealing with each of those incidents. Temperature checks for people entering the grounds, required protective coverings for individuals' mouth and noses, and restrictions of access uh, only to essential personnel, some of the things that they're working on. And what's unfortunate is while 
all this is happening, um, New York is just kind of sitting around and waiting because there's nothing they can do. You know, New York's in a bad spot right now. They have completed a, pan- a plan for re- uh, racing without fans. They're hoping it will be receiving approval before the end of the month, but they don't know. Things have not been great in New York, and they're hoping May 22nd, May 29th, maybe they get approval, and it could be you know a week or so after that. But we're getting you know a ton of these tracks that have either gotten the green light or are really close to getting the green light to uh to open back up with with the protocols. With no fans, obviously, horses training at Belmont, but uh, they they need you know to be able to have more horses shipping in, because right now the only horses that can ship in are unraced two year olds or horses in the midst of a layoff. So they need the horses from from you know from Florida from all over the place um, to come in. And then obviously you know they they're waiting. They don't know what to do with their stake schedule. You know because the Belmont schedule is for June sixth, but you know we're into May right now. That doesn't seem very likely and. They're going to have to kind of figure out what they're going to do, when they're going to move it, how they're going to move it to the later part of the meet, how they're going to do it. Um, so, unfortunately, when some of the other places and the other tracks are, are moving forward, um, New York and Belmont, they're kind of just waiting in the wings a little bit. And then the, the voters have actually put Nadal up as the top three-year-old after the uh, the Arkansas Derby win this weekend. He currently number one in the voting over Tis the Law, Charlatan's third, Authentic is fourth, King Guillermo's fifth, Honor AP sixth, Sol Volante seven, Ete Indian eight, Maxfield is nine, and Basin is ten. We're going to talk about Maxfield in just a second. And uh, we also got By My Standards moving to number three on the older horse. He's only behind Midnight Bisu and Mucho Gusto. He's right ahead of Zulu Alpha, CC, Tom's D, Tot. Maximum Security, Whitmore, Mr. Freeze, and Code of Honor. Maxfield, grade one winner. He looks like he's going to be pointing to that May 23rd Matt Wynn stakes and maybe get him some Kentucky Derby points. Remember Maxfield, he was two for two last year. He broke his maiden, and then he won the Breeders' Futurity at Keeneland, and he was a super live contender. A lot of people were really high on him heading into the Breeders' Cup, and then unfortunately, he... He um he got he had a little bit of a, a hiccup. He had a small injury. He was scratched from the Breeders' Cup after he had some discomfort the, a few days before the race, and so we haven't seen him since. And now this is a good spot for him. Walsh says it's it's home there at Churchill, and looks like Jose Ortiz will be aboard for the ride. This this race has been changed now. Remember because uh, it was generally run you know later after the Derby, but now. With there having been no derby, this is a good opportunity to get another spot for some three-year-olds to run, stretch their legs, stay in good shape, and maybe pick up a couple extra points along the way. So, a couple other things to note. The Los Alamitos Derby, grade three, mile and an eighth on July the 4th, it is now a $150,000 race, and it will be a Kentucky Derby points race. They just don't know how how much yet. But they raised the purse a little bit to, um, you know, attract the attention of the committee and be able to get this as one of these races now to circle and give them some points. Golden Gate, another racetrack that is uh, ready to rock. They are looking to open back up May the 14th through June the 14th, four days per week, the Grade 3 San Francisco Mile on June the 14th, and they've had some of their stakes races that have been postponed 
until the later meeting uh, this year. And just some quick uh, Hall of Fame news. Trainer Mark Cassie, who this is uh, from Jay Privman, DRF article. He said, Trainer Mark Cassie, major victories include Triple Crown races in the U.S. and Canada, as well as the Breeders' Cup and Royal Ascot. And Wise Dan were announced on Wednesday as uh, new Hall of Famers in this year's inductees. Five others include uh, Daryl McCargue, um, 80, 1870s racehorse Tom Bowling, um, and Alice Headley Chandler, and Keen Dangerfield Jr., and George Widener Jr. So those are the Hall of Famers this year. Congratulations to those those that did not make the Hall of Fame this year, that didn't make the uh, the vote. They were uh, Cassie and Wise Dan were two of the 11 finalists on that ballot. They got at least 50% of the support. And the nine who failed to make the cut. Blind Luck, Game on Dude, Aubrey de Grace, uh, Kona Gold, Rags to Riches, and then trainers Christoph Clement, Doug O'Neill, uh, David Wheatley, uh, David Whiteley, and then jockey Corey Nakatani. So, Hall of Fame information there. Let's get into some specifics on the races, right? And let's get into Gulfstream Park. Let's go to Friday. Or let's, let's start with... One of the sponsors of That's What G Said podcast is Cindy Carava, full-service realtor. And I am here over in Glendora at Coldwell Banker with Cindy Carava. Cindy, how was 2019 for you? Tell us uh, a little bit about what uh, what kind of stuff you were working on. Hi, Gino. Thanks for having me. Uh, 2019 was just really great. Uh, I had a great year uh, selling homes all the way from Altadena, Arcadia, Monrovia, out to Upland and Ontario just recently. Um, the market has, has been uh, really good. Um, we're looking forward to 2020 with an increase in home prices about 5.8% this year, opposed to last year where it was a little softer. We saw uh, more like homes averaging about 3.5% in increase in value. Um, it's also looking great for buyers. Uh, the interest rates right now are going to be staying under 4%. So if you've been on the fence about thinking about buying a home, now is the time to do so with interest rates still staying low. And you offer more services than just the buying, selling, and leasing homes. Tell us about some of the other services that you offer and what a full service realtor really is. So you're right, Gino, besides me being uh, a full service realtor of uh, finding properties for my clients to buy or selling their homes or finding rentals for them, um, I also have a plethora of resources like uh, handyman, contractors, electricians, plumbers. Uh, I even, if like I said, if you're thinking about getting a home loan, I actually work with two great lenders that I can recommend to anybody. And you're all over the internet, social media, websites. Let us know some of the places where we can find you. I know I've seen some reviews on Yelp and on Zillow. They, everyone always has positive things to say. Everybody hears me raving about you all the time. But where can uh, everyone else find out information about you or contact? Thank you, Gino. Yeah, I am on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, and uh, you can contact me on my website, which is www.cindycarava.com or my email, which is cindyc.realtor at gmail.com, or feel free to call or text me on my cell phone, which is 626-394-6400. 
Cindy is awesome. She's one of the kindest and most genuine people I've ever met. I promise you, you will enjoy every minute you interact with her. So thank you very much, Cindy. Uh, appreciate all of your support from That's What She Said podcast. Thank you, Gino. Have a great day, everyone. Thursday, April, Thursday, May the 7th, April. Yeah, April's gone by. Thursday, May the 7th at Gulfstream Park. Let's get to a couple plays there. Uh, race number one, five furlongs on the turf. I'm going to go to the seven. Business in Dubai. Now, she's coming out of a couple races where she was going longer on the grass. She showed a little speed in those starts. But I actually like the February 27th race where when she was sprinting, going five furlongs. She got stuck in a really bad spot down on the inside. Nowhere to go. Um, got shuffled, took up, um, came on again. When you look at her, she might be one of the most quick naturally in this field. There just isn't a ton of speed. There's a couple others who have some kind of pressing type speed, and it wouldn't be shocked to see you know one of a few of these show a little speed. But if she's able to get the lead or sit very close on the cutback with an aggressive jockey and a big jock upgrade with Saez jumping aboard, I think she's got a major, major shot in here. If she's close early, she's going to be really tough on the cutback. There's just not a lot of speed for a five furlong turf sprint race like this. Let's give the seven business in Dubai top billing. We'll make a win wager if we can get anything around seven to two. Make sure to use that one in uh, in your exotics. In race number two, uh, I thought the eight was a little bit interesting. Mainly, this is just an experience edge for a barn who's really good second out, and this filly gets off the rail, drawing the rail first time out, not easy. Now you get an, you get the experience edge. You move from the inside to the outside. You have one other horse in this field who has raced before, and this is a barn who is really, really good with two-year-olds and really good with horses that are making their second start. I like Awesome View in here. If you're playing that early pick five, make sure to throw Awesome View onto your ticket. Maybe uh, maybe make a win wager if you can get around like five to one or so. Let's get to race number four. A couple horses to take a look at in here. Uh, the four formula, she had a brutal start in her debut, and that was against Maiden 50s going long on the grass. These are Maiden 16s going long on the grass. She was slow. She was bumped on both sides. She was 15-plus lengths off. She actually showed some ability just getting back in the race and only losing by, you know, six lengths or so. Now you get the drop. You get a major jock upgrade with Joel jumping aboard. I think Formula should come rolling today, and she might even have more speed than we know because she just had that awful, awful start. Garner State Park, the five, had some legitimate trouble too. She had a slow start in her uh, April 17th race. She was four wide. She was bumped into the turn. Uh, she was four wide into the turn, and she was at the rear. Then she takes up. Then she settles in about seventh or eighth. She's maybe like seven lengths off or so. She's in the two path. And she moves in between horses. Then she angles out four wide at the top of the lane. She gets the lead. She opens up two, but she couldn't straighten out late. She was a clear-cut second to a 40-to-1 long shot who blew up the tote board. For me, any any of the early exotics, use the four and the five in that fourth race. And, um, you know, whichever of these, if you get, like, a much better price on one or the other, then that's that's how I would play them. But I'd probably play the two of them in the exotics and and key the two of them in a lot of uh, of the rolling exotics. In the fifth race, I'm going to use the one Indian counselor on top. Put a line right through the last. The dirt isn't really what this one wants. So let's focus on his turf races. 
Two starts back on March the 25th, he sat close early, and this was going a mile and a half. And he waited behind a runoff horse. He was in the two path. He was about seven lengths off. He was in second and third. And then he kind of got caught in between horses. He shoots through, but he just moved a little bit too early. And he probably didn't want to go a mile and a half. Not many horses nowadays, you know, really want to go that far. Um, I think Indian Counselor on the cutback should be really, really tough in here. So let's make sure to use this one in all of your exotics. The two digital footprint maker is so good with, uh, you know, horses coming into their barn for the first time, first off the claim, or new acquisitions. And in particular, when you have a horse like this, um, you know, on the grass going long. So the two is hard to leave out underneath and in exotics. And then the four, blameless. I don't know if there's that much speed in here. Depends on what the uh, the plans with the two digital footprint are. I wouldn't be shocked to see Blameless sitting pretty close in here in a race that doesn't look to have a ton of other speed. So uh, let's uh, let's use the one with Indian Counselor with the two digital footprint with the four Blameless uh, in some of those other exotics. Okay, let's skip to race number nine now at Gulfstream Park for uh, our next play. And it's going to be the four Champagne Horizon. Who, you know, I I just remember making the note when this one ran off uh, and got loose in the post parade and then just didn't fire. And she's better than that. We've seen her. If she just runs back to her form prior to that, she's right on the wire here. The three bean counter is going to be, you know, the one they have to beat. I don't know if she loves winning races, though. And then the two Lido key, interesting for McPeak, coming in off a, a pretty nice put-it-all-together kind of win and now in the McPeak barn for the first time. So I would use the 4-3-2 in race number 9 at Gulfstream Park. And then I think my, my best play of the day at Gulfstream actually is going to come in the uh, the 11th race. That's going to be with the 9, Coco Star. So he's raced three times. All of them were against Maiden Special Weight Company, so all of his races have been against Tougher. In his debut, it's at Turfway Park. It's going long on the synthetic. So he doesn't like the synthetic, that's fine You can put a line right through it And he lost to a horse named Invader Who came back to win the uh, the, Jabata- the John Bataglia And was second in the grade 3 Jeff Ruby Coco Star then comes back on January the 18th Finishes 7th But it's not a bad effort that day When finishing 7th on that January 18th race The winner shakes some action Came back to win next out And then was 6th in the Louisiana Derby And really didn't run that poorly Auburn Hills came back back to win a maiden special weight next out. The fourth place finisher, Spanish Kingdom, won his maiden special weight two starts later, that March 21st race, when defeating Coco Star. The ninth place finisher, Urbanite, came back to win a maiden 32 starts later. Even the 13th place finisher, Coach Bahe, won a maiden special weight next out and actually came back and was fifth in the Rebel and ran pretty well. That was a strong race on, on the 18th. So we're looking at a horse who's coming out of much, much better races. And last time out behind Spanish Kingdom, who um, I think is just a little bit better at, at the maiden special weight level. Now you're going to go second off a short little break. And Coco Star like, had some legitimate trouble last time out. He broke in, he bumped, he was squeezed out of the spot that he wanted. So he has to settle inside 6th, 7th, in about 7 lengths off or so. He's behind horses, he's waiting, he gets an opening, he moves in between, he angles out and around, and he actually gets up to third in the stretch before tiring, so a little bit of early trouble, race that's better than it looks on paper, now you're going to drop in class, we're going to go with Coco Star, the number 9, 
top selection there. And if we can get, you know, three to one or so on Coco Star, we'll also use in some exotics with the two, two by two. So the plays for Gulfstream Park on Thursday, May the 7th, in race number one, business in Dubai. The value line there is about seven to two. In race number two, the eight awesome view. What we're hoping for there is around five to one. Fourth race, the number four formula used with the number five Garner State Park as two in, in some of your exotics. You know, if we can seven to two on either of them would be fair. Indian Counselor feels like the same around seven to two in race number five. That's the one Indian Counselor used along with the digital footprint, the two and the four blameless. In the ninth race, the number four Champagne Horizon with the three bean counter with the two Lido Key. And in the 11th, the number nine Coco Star with the deuce two by two. That's Thursday, Gulfstream Park. Let's get over to Friday at Tampa. Tampa, Friday, May the 8th. Let's jump to race number two for the first play. And it's going to be the number six in here. That is, he's smoking now. So you look at this race. It's actually a really strong race. There's um, some quality in, in here. But I think this is the right time to try to to catch a price. The, they, a couple of these horses haven't raced in a while. They might need a, a layoff. The three horses to the inside haven't raced since October or November. And then the way it shapes up on paper, it looks like there's going to be a lot of speed in here. I think the six he's smoking now is in a great spot. Let's go through his career. His debut, he was one of two next out winners, right? He didn't run well, but then he comes back in career start number two and he wins at Presque Isle. Comes back on December the 21st, he wins again. So they step him up, he takes a shot against Stakes Company. He, he's On paper, he's overmatched. He finishes fourth that day, but he runs into a horse named Liam's Lucky Charm, who was a multiple Stakes winner, and Liam's Lucky Charm was only 5-1 to one in the Risen Star. On January the 31st, he takes a shot going long on the grass. He loses to a horse named Keepsake Kitten, who had won 3 of 4, and he actually didn't run bad. He had a little bit of trouble that day. He was fine going long on the grass. They cut back to a dirt sprint. He stumbles badly right at the start. He goes right down to his nose. He recovers. He moves up the rail into a really tight spot. He gets a great opening. He moves through. He takes the lead. He opens up. He wins easily. He's drawn well. He should get a great trip from off the pace in here. Is he as good as some of the other horses to his inside? Probably not, but he might be able to catch them right now when they haven't raced in a while. For him, it's only been a few months. I don't mind that he's a little bit fresh with his running style either. He's not a horse that's probably going to have to work hard all throughout. He's going to be taking back, hoping they go quick early, and making that one late run. Let's go to the six. He's smoking now, if we can get anything around 7-2. to two. In race number three, let's look at the nine, Highly Explosive. They're going to be going long on the grass in here. Highly Explosive has raced twice. In her debut, she was against Maiden Special Weight sprinting on the dirt. Didn't run well. Career start number two, she dropped in for Maiden 32, and they wanted to get this race. She wanted to go on the grass, but the race was taken off the turf. So she runs, and she actually broke pretty well. She sat a close-up third. She was in between horses. She was within a couple lengths. She just didn't seem like she loved the surface, so she ends up backing up. Now they're finally going to get on turf. Her dam won on the turf. Both the siblings won. One of them won on the turf. You're going to drop in class again. I think she's a little bit sneaky because her races haven't looked good, but this is what she wants to do. Let's use the nine, highly explosive in all of our exotics. We'll make a win wager if we can get around like eight to one or so. Let's skip to race number five for the next play at Tampa for Friday, May the 8th. And let's go to the three. Redeem my heart. 
she tried the grass for the first time in her last start, and she it was a slow start. She was outrun. She was like 10 plus off. Actually, she was dead last. She was probably six lengths behind the second to last horse. She closed really well. She angles to the middle of the racetrack. She's literally in like the 8-9 path down the center of the track, way closer to the outer rail than the inner rail. And that was in February, and that was in a good race at Fairgrounds. Now she's going to go second time turf. Spieth jumps back aboard. He knows this filly well. And she doesn't have to be so far back in here, right? Lady Nina has pace. O'Keefe has pace. Regal Chant has pace. Dealer's Girl has pace. Puntsville has pace. No Mercy Percy probably won't be too far out of it. She, she can close a little bit in here, but her form is, is, is kind of questionable. I think it points to Redeem My Heart getting a great trip from off the up the speed, but she just doesn't have to be you know, 12 lengths out of it. She can sit closer. She showed speed, and we're not talking about like legitimate sprint speed, but she can be closer. Redeem My Heart, the number three. If we can get seven to two, we'll make a win wager on Redeem My Heart. Let's go to race number seven, and let's go to the three. Channel Ed's long shot. He just doesn't like the dirt. Toss his debut. Again, this is what I like to do. We go race by race. That that's where you're able to look at horses and go, you know what? They have a reason why they didn't run that well in that spot, and maybe their form is better than it looks. Debut doesn't run well sprinting on the dirt. Stretches out in career start number two, but that's a that's a maiden fifty on the turf. That's probably a group that's a little bit too tough because he actually hooks a horse um, named Monforte who has come back and beat him again, and Monforte has won five of his last six. So those two races against Monforte, you're looking at a horse who's just better than Channel Dead's long shot. So the September 6th race, I really like when he won that day in the Maiden 25. That kind of a race would fit really well in here. And if he stepped up and improved a little bit as a three-year-old, he's going to go second start off the long layoff. The blinkers come off. He goes back to the turf. He gets a class drop. Makes a lot of sense in here. This is not a strong race. There are no monsters. The three, big shot at 7-2. to two. Let's go to the ninth race at Tampa for the final play on Friday at Tampa. And it is the number two U.S. Delta Force. I wouldn't be shocked if he gets bet down a little bit. He, It's a sugar horse, and all of his horses seem to fire here. Morales is back, and he's riding. But he may be a horse you can single in some of your exotics late. If he's over 9-5, to five, I think that's actually value on him. He broke in in his last start. So his debut at, at Belmont it was in a tough race, and he shows a little bit of speed, but he's gone from September to April, so there's something went amiss. He comes back. He breaks inward, but he breaks pretty well. He tracks back to about 6th. He's inside. He's about 5 lengths off. He's in a tight spot. He moves into contention, but he couldn't get to the lone speed winner that day. And he ends up losing second late in the stretch Now he goes second off the long layoff He picks up Morales Plenty of things to like in here Should be very very live with a little extra distance US Delta Force That's the number 2 Maybe a a late exotic single I think if you get over 2 to 1 that's value So at Tampa In race number 2 it's the 6 He's smoking now 7 to 2 the value line there In the 3rd race the number 9 highly explosive Value line about 8 to 1 there on the 9 in the fifth race, the number three, Redeem My Heart. Seven to two, it looks fair there. In the seventh race, the number three, Channeled Ed's Long Shot. Seven to two or so. In the ninth race, the number two, 
U.S. Delta Force around 9 to 5 uh, seems fair. So maybe a late exotic single or uh, we'll look for the value if we can get it there on that one. Let's head over to Gulfstream for uh, Friday and close things out. Finishing up the uh, the racing talk with some Gulfstream for Friday, May the 8th. Uh, Some plays here, then I'll give you a little bit of a a late pick for. Um, Let's go to race number one with the number seven, Haffy. She debuted against Maiden Special Weight. I think she's in too tough. She drops in at the Maiden Claiming level last time out, and she just has a slow start. She's forced five. Uh, she's forced five wide into the turn, three four deep uh, at the back of the pack. It just has no shot winning with that kind of a trip, and you're chasing a lone speed winner that day. So I think the seven halfy expect a better start. Expect this one to show a lot more. If you can get like over three to one, that seems like a fair price in a weak race. Let's jump to race number six, and let's go to the number two commanding lady, who was a step slow last time out, and she ends up outrun at the rear. She's four wide. She moves up slightly. I think she was just in a little bit too tough against the Maiden 50s, and now you're in at the Maiden 16. You got that little race under your belt. Should be a little more fit now. Two back, lost to a horse in that Maiden 50 that won by nine lengths next time out, so she's coming out of some strong races, and this is not a group of monsters. The number two Commanding lady, same type of thing. If we can get around three to one or so, that feels fair. Let's move to race number eight, and you can play a late pick four starting in race number eight. So the way I will is um, I'm going to use the ten as a big price in here. Bayou Prospect, he had a fine start, and this was his first time going long on the grass, and he's going to be in a similar type situation going seven and a half furlongs when he went a mile last time out. He was at the back of the pack. He settled mid-pack. He's six lengths off or so. He's in between horses, and then he goes down to the inside. He splits horses. He angles around. It's a driving finish. It was a good win, just a good, clean win. I think he's a horse to use in all of your exotics. If you get over 10 to 1, that feels fair. The Ford Dyna Drive was claimed by a really good claim barn. They're so good when they move a horse to the grass, too. And they couldn't get on the grass last time out. So, unfortunately, they stuck in the race that was taken off the grass. And they ran pretty well, finishing second. Now you're going to go back to the grass. Joel's jumping aboard. Obviously a major, major player. The five rhythm section. Top contender. Tough to exclude. This one uh, shows a major improvement stepping up and beating a group of maiden specials. And then the 12, uncork the bottle, gets back to the green. I mean, just look at the grass races. It's tough to knock the, the form. So we'll use those four, four, five, ten, and twelve in the late pick four the, in race number eight. Uh, in race number nine, the five is one that's you know maybe a little bit um, interesting. That's not quite as obvious. Blue Ridge Mountain. So he had a fine debut at Laurel. He broke from the rail and he finished second that day sprinting. Then he stretches out in the slop, and so between those two races. We know that he's fine on the dirt because he ran well in the dirt in the debut. We know that he's fine going long because he won going long even though it was in the slop. So no problem with the distance, no problem with the surface. February the 1st, he just hooks a really tough group. He faced a lot better. It's a race that's come back and produced a next out winner already. And it's a race that was sandwiched by a couple short layoffs. He comes back last time out and he takes a shot on the turf. Okay. Maybe he just doesn't want to go on the grass. You can make legitimate excuses for those two. 
If you're playing him just off his first two races, I think he fits really nicely in here. That's the number five. Blue Ridge Mountain. The one Dizzy Sight also makes sense. The two Frank First. The three Flute Maker. All very obvious logical contenders that I would use in the pick four. One, two, three, and five. And then the tenth race is one where you're probably going to have to use a few, I guess. You know, I, I would start with the seven who... Had a lot of trouble two starts back and then was super impressive. Was one of the horses that we played on April the 2nd, but was more of like a kind of an exotic single type play. Dixie in Candyland. So make sure to uh, include her on all of your tickets. She She's really kind of coming into her own and figuring things out now. This is a really good spot for her. The one, Our Happy Ending, there's not a ton of speed. And so I think it might come from the the couple of inside horses. I would use the one and even the two at a big price, Regal Chan, if he's in here. Um, He may have the opportunity to just get asked. And if he catches this field sleeping a little bit, you know, making making her turf debut, she could be really tough. So the seven, the one, and the six is kind of my top tier, Hidden Facts. I think Hidden Facts makes a lot of sense. And then I would have Regal Chant underneath them, also with Kitten's Cover Girl as a horse who would be no shock. I mean, she has enough speed to be right on the lead if need be, and if they ask her from out wide, maybe she's able to kind of get over and clear. So I'd be fine with 1, 2, 6, 7, and 11 in race number 10. And then to close it out, if you want to single the one Ocean Fire, I'm fine with that. She sat close, she was three wide into the turn She sat second, she kind of took back a couple lengths She moves to the lead in between She just misses, it's a wicked beat That's against better So this drop should put her over the top Because she's been knocking on the door for a while But if, if you don't want to just single A horse who's 0 for 8 And a barn who's really been struggling at the meet Maybe you include the two also Florado If you look at her last two starts She got in trouble in both of them on February the 26th, she had a good start. She was right on the lead, but she chose to sit inside third, three lengths off. She was in tight. She was waiting behind horses with nowhere to go. She got clear late. She ends up winning the battle for third. Then last time out, she's tucked inside, but she's in very tight. She's right up on heels. She has a brutal trip with absolutely nowhere to go. And still finishing second, ducking down to the inside and almost wins the race. This group, with just the presence of the dropper, Ocean Fire, is going to be a little bit tougher than what she's been facing. I would use the two inside horses, and if you want to single the one Ocean Fire, I'm fine with that. So the Gulfstream plays for Friday, May the 8th. First race, the number 7, Haffy. 3-1 to one is the value line there. Sixth race, the number 2, uh, Commanding Lady. 3-1 to one is the value line there. Eighth race, the 10, Bayou Prospector. 10-1. to one. Uh, ninth race, the five Blue Ridge Mountain. We want to get around at least four to one. And the tenth race, the seven Dixie and Candyland. We'd want around four to one on that one as well. So something like this in a pick four, I would go four, five, ten, twelve with one, two, three, five with one, two, six, seven, eleven with one, two. And if you guys want to single the one in the, you guys and gals want to single the one in the last, that's fine by me. But I'll probably double up with the deuce in there also. Good luck Thursday. Good luck. Friday, that's racing for uh, this episode, but we will have some weekend racing, talk a little uh, a little Gulfstream, and probably a little Tampa for uh, for Saturday and for Sunday on the next episode of That's What G Said. Right now, we close things out with SummerSlam 92. It is 
one of the coolest events visually in WWF history. And Jason Beam and Danny Kovalev joined me to discuss every match, all the promos, what was happening in the World Wrestling Federation in 1992. Kick back and enjoy. Get the popcorn ready. It's time for the SummerSlam 1992 recap. Back again to talk some old wrestling, but in fact, this time... We're not going to be talking WrestleMania. It's actually going to be the first time we're talking a non-WrestleMania recap show. But I will say, as uh, Jason Beam and Danny Kovlov join me, Jason, this really does feel like a WrestleMania with a scope immediately. I mean, before we even get it, like, uh, 30 seconds into the show, Vince is already using all the WrestleMania words. The grandeur! The pageantry! So this, I mean, this is a really, really fun show, and the crowd just helps it a ton. I think it's one of the best atmospheres of any wrestling event ever. To me, that was always what was so fun about going back and watching it was remembering like, you know, I mean, there was an urgency obviously because it's, you know, the first time they'd have a big event like that in Britain and the bulldog was the headliner and stuff. But I mean, it was just literally from the start of the show to the end of the show, like the crowd never really let up. Like even during some of the not so great matches, like they were still into it. You felt you felt that electricity, and it just felt like so much of a bigger deal than any other non-WrestleMania shows that they'd done to that point. You've got the visual with Wembley Stadium, rabid crowd chanting 80,000-plus uh, Union Jacks hanging in there, and yeah, it was a spectacle. And to make it even what's kind of crazy about it is that it's such a good show, it's such a big feel, this is actually the first pay-per-view without Hulk Hogan. Um, in WWF, um, I, it, we had been so used to Hulk Hogan closing every show, the pose at the end. You're going to hear Hulk's music no matter what. And this was like the first time in a really long time we had no Hulk Hogan here. And this show did not suffer one bit. 92 was a real kind of changing of the guard in WWF. There was a lot of behind the scenes things going on with the steroids going with the steroid trial and a lot of WWF and Vince McMahon were involved in this big big steroid scandal so what we started to see was a lot less of the big strong guy in the main event we saw a lot more like wrestling kind of come into play and that's where Bret Hart kind of took the ball for the next few years and Shawn Michaels they kind of take the ball and run with it but but this is a this is a good show and a lot of things change in this show uh, because, like, I think initially Ultimate Warrior was supposed to turn heel. He didn't want to. They end up changing the matches a little bit because this is in the UK because they wanted to build the show around the Bulldog. And he was super popular, as you could imagine, anytime they would go on European tours. So it's just a, a, a WrestleMania feel at SummerSlam 92. And have, have as we've been, like, talking and joking uh, about this show and, like, texting back and forth about it for the last couple of weeks... I think one of our favorite parts of the show, if not our favorite, right <laughs> off right off the damn bat. I mean, we get SummerSlam brought to you by Ico Pro. Ico Pro. <laughs> Literally, I, you know, I, I put a note about Ico Pro. Like, it's, it, I remember when that came about, and they were very vague for a long time. Like, we didn't really know what it what was. It is. I know. Like, I didn't know. I didn't know if it was a medication, or I mean, you know, I use that word with big fat quotation marks around it, uh, or a program, or a clothing line i just remember seeing like vince wearing the ico pro uh you know heavyweight uh tank top with you know with his back bulging out i i remember thinking it was some kind of like muscle milk or energy drink that you were supposed to do like i, I didn't know any of that stuff 
the, yeah, we, we got the big Ico Pro banners just a year later hanging on Monday Night Raw all the time. And for a little while, we were definitely getting the Ico Pro everything. Um, then then we get the fans. This is And this is great. So we get the fans. Um, the, the one thing that I, is great is that um, anytime something like anyone from the U.S. in TV, movies, sporting events goes to to the UK goes to England they have to really lay it on thick with the old England ancestry and like they yeah. really it just can't be like you're visiting another place yeah they resurrected lord alfred right i know oh yeah they did and so it's very like you get like as danny said lots of union jacks it's very you know exactly where you are right away and we get the fans and um some of them their accents so thick you can't even understand what they're saying but the, but the one kid says they're interviewing, you know, kids and, you know, what do you, what do you think? And they're all excited to be here, this and that. And oh, the one kid said, I think he's wearing a big boss man hat or two. The, the kid, he says, the British bulldog is going to win whether he wants to or not, <laughs> which is just, it's actually true. Because even if he doesn't want to win, if he's booked to win, he's going to win anyway. So I guess the kid knows what he's talking about. No, I think this kid is a little jerk, and he's—I mean—that—that's <laughs> a threat. Like it, he was making a threat to people. Like he's like he was telling Vince, he's like, "Look, the bulldog's going to win whether he wants to or not." So you know, like this this kid's probably taking people out at the knees right now. He's probably thirty-five. <laughs> Wouldn't be surprised if Bret Hart some, had some similar sentiments that night. You know, British Bulldog's going to have a five-star match whether he wants to or not. Yeah, there, and there were a lot of kind of things too um, um, that were playing behind the scenes. Like uh, all reports, if you've read or or like like listened to any of the stuff that Brett's put out there, or any of the scathing stuff that Diana Hart in like a book that you can't really yeah. find very much anymore. Um, the Bulldog was supposedly just drugged out of his mind on this show. Um, he had been not in a great place recently, and he, he like told Brett right before like. I'm messed up. And then there's one point like early on in the match where he just kind of says, Brett, I'm fucked. <laughs> and he just, <laughs> he just didn't know. He like forgot the way they laid out the rest of the match, which is incredible because the match is so damn good. And Brett like carries him through it. But I mean, he's messed up in the main event. In the first match that we see Hawk is like not in a great place. He ends up not getting on the plane and flying back with the WWF when they come back. And this is the, so we open things up. It's Money Inc. versus uh, the LOD, and this is the last time we see the, the LOD in the WWF until '97 when they return with Sonny. So for about five years or so, um, DiBiase looks awesome and is all white. I love when he had the white. Yeah, I, I didn't remember when he wore white. Yeah, I, was this a rare? It was like a summer. Was I think regular? it was just a summer, like when he would bust it out in the summer while, while he was making his uh, summertime residence in Palm Beach, Florida. Yeah, in in Monaco or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's a great line where. Uh, Bobby says, what is the net worth of this tag team? Maybe it's Vince that says it, but it's funny because like if IRS is, is, is an auditor, like he's making a good living, but like, that's not like a net worth kind of job. He's I supposed mean, to be kind of the opposite. Ideal, though, so maybe he's skimming a little off the top. That could, exactly. Oh, he, he's stealing our, uh, well, because well, it's always the hypocrites, right? He's calling everybody a tax cheat. And meanwhile, who knows what his paperwork looks like. Wouldn't it be funny if like the real guy. Uh, got arrested for tax evasion. Or tax evasion, just like he like uh, it was like he's too in the in the character, just like re really living the uh, yeah. the IRS gimmick. But we, no matter what, we get the crazy pop. I mean, this this yeah. crowd was so like just 
hungry for anything Like you said, Jason, like even through some of the matches that are not great or really short Or just obvious squash matches, they were up and they were crazy for the LOD Um, I thought they were popping for Rocco over there Oh my gosh So at this point, LOD comes down to the ring with their manager Paul Ellering And when they brought Paul Ellering back There was a storyline that said that the, the Legion of Doom was like Losing, um, they weren't in touch with their roots anymore So they brought them back to the streets of Chicago And they would go there to try to like find themselves And, and they're they both found from Minneapolis by the way Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they found a ventriloquist dummy That yeah. used to be their dummy named Rocco I mean this was a, this was a silly storyline Mainly because um, like LOD and never did anything cartoony or char- like charactery like this Like they're pretty just badass guys They're just going to come in and beat you up you know, and so you put the the Rocco and this with it just it was not a good like end of the run of this first run with LOD to NWWF. But Jason, this was a badass entrance though when they come in with the with the heart like with the Harleys on the motorcycles. Um, they actually announce Rocco too. He says he announces Hollering with Rocco. Rocco. <laughs> with Rocco. So what'd you think about this match overall? You know what? I I thought this was Jason. I thought this was. Like I see LOD, I see Money Inc. You're not sure exactly what's going to be, but this was fun, and a lot of these matches definitely got boosted by the crowd. I think these guys continue to like work a little bit harder when the crowd's picking you up. Yeah, there's a few spots, including in the uh, the Bulldog and Heart match, which we'll get to, where you know there's there's a lot of like long long choke holds, which you know are, I mean are pretty much dead nowadays. Now it's like you have to kind of constantly spot spot spot, and. Uh, and this match was kind of a little methodical at its start because you know they were all kind of standing around in the ring before they really got cranking. And uh, you know, DiBiase early on gets out of the ring, collects himself. So I mean, it it didn't have a breakneck pace, but like you said, I mean, to me, the whole theme of the show is the crowd because it really yeah. keeps everything, uh, you know, going just going throughout the thing. And I know that there's. You know, there's always the stories about Hawk and in this match, and but like I thought, I mean. I don't know. Like I, I didn't see it. Same with Bulldog. Me either. No, no, like, no. Me, I didn't see it. At all. Look, everything looks kind of on the up and up. Like, I mean, the guy's driving a motorcycle down a, a thin alleyway. Like, if he's messed up, like, I mean, he was straight as a string coming down I there. Agree. So. I agree. It's hard, even knowing that we see, like, we know that it's, we still can't find yeah. it. Um, Danny, what do you think about this one? That was a, think a definition of a hot opener. You know, yeah. L- LOD coming down like that. They're they're cool no matter what. They're going to pop any crowd anywhere. When you've got uh, you know the the rabid London audience, uh, all for it. Two guys e- you want to find two guys easier to hate than uh, Ted DiBiase and IRS. And uh, yeah, I thought it was a you know g- good opener. I hadn't seen this uh, show in years and years. Completely took me by surprise when Animal uh, took out DiBiase with a power slam. That was the one two three. I'm like, oh, that was that. Yeah, it was kind of abrupt. Um, right, right after we, the match. You know, can I, can, can I mention uh, Joey Morella's count on the on the final three? He moves like literally a, a different position for each count. Like he's down by their feet when he hits the one. He's mid body by the two, and he's like at their head by three. Go back and watch it if you get a chance. Okay, I will. I didn't Just even notice that. It, like he literally is like he's hopping like sliding. up and down. Yeah, like on each uh, on each count. It's pretty funny. Yeah, so this what I liked about this was 
you know, this was this was more than just your typical LOD beatdown squash. They actually sold pretty well in here. Um, it was a good back and forth tag, and um, one of my favorite spots in like the old matches, and we always got these in the Hogan matches, was the uh, you know when they put him in the in the rest hold and like the neck the headlock, and they drop the arm the two times, and then the arm's gonna drop on the third time, but he doesn't drop, and then he builds it back up. I always that's that was always a fun spot I loved when I was a kid because like no, it's not gonna drop three times, and I. I mean, when did you ever see anyone lose that way when their arm dropped three times? Never. But I still always thought that it, there may be a chance. Yeah, because uh, even on the sleeper, they'd check it once and they'd, yeah. they'd yeah. call it over. Uh, I, I got a tangent off that just for just for a Go, second. Please, uh, please. 15 years later, or was it 10 years later, when it's Brock versus Hogan on SmackDown, right before Brock beats uh, Rock at SummerSlam for the world title a few weeks later, they put him in against the Hulkster, who's in his nostalgia run at this time. Finish is Brock gets him in this tight bear hug. Arm drops once, twice, third time, passes out. And wow, uh, I just I forgot remember, that. Yeah, no, and it just put Brock over huge because you know you'd never seen face good guy Hogan just go out like that. Yeah, so I forgot that's a good pulling, good pull, Danny K. Yeah, and then how about right at the very end when they just count the pin, Bobby just says that stinks. <laughs> just right after me. <laughs> just so stupid. And then he's like, what? He's like, LOD. And then Vince is like, what? He's like, LOD, what? Legion of Dune won. You know, he's oh. just like, that stinks. So uh, we get to uh, me and Gene backstage, who's with Flair. Flair's mad. He isn't the number one contender. Um, I, you know, the, the storyline was kind of weird because the storyline is actually more about Mr. Perfect than Flair. So he's kind of in no man's land here. He doesn't really have like much to discuss. I would have. It's crazy. I know they didn't have anything, but you could have. Sh- you figure he's in. You're you're in the UK. I'm I'm still shocked they couldn't get him in a squash match somewhere on this card just to like get him on the card wrestling, have him beat someone because Ric Flair is going to win the title back two days after this. The the this is actually taped on August the 29th, 1992. It's shown on August the 31st uh, on pay per view in the US, and then on a taping September the 1st, he loses the title back to. Ric Flair, um, Macho Man loses the title back to Ric Flair So um, we get Flair, he's just kind of teasing whose corner he, him and Perfect are going to be in He give, We get a little a little sense of that Ric Flair promo when he talks about bright lights Big city means London, SummerSlam, WWF, Ric Flair And um, I mean, just kind of setting up that he and Mr. Perfect are going to be involved um, Throughout the uh, the rest of the night But it's, it's a bummer, uh, Jason, because it's like we just we we could have gotten so much more with Ric Flair after the really like the one year year and a half run he had in in the WWF felt like there was still so much more meat on the bone. Yeah, I I was never a Flair guy because I was I was very much a WWE not an NWA mm-hmm. guy back in the WrestleMania three four five era and so Flair to me was always like the other team the other enemy kind of guy. So when he came over, I was like oh not this guy you know and so I didn't kind of gain an appreciation for him until uh, I was older. And uh, as you talked about like. They're a real linchpin of this show, and if you don't know the story, which I know they do go back toward the end and, and kind of update you, but I remember watching these first interviews, and I'm like, why did, why, I don't care if either of these guys are down by the ring. Like, why, who, who yeah. cares whose corner they're, you know? I like know, it, it, it was... It, it was... It just felt a little bit forced to try to give more drama. I don't... There's, there's a lot of people out there that, like, kind of hate on the warrior and... Like his matches with Savage are, are were both at least the two Incredible. big ones were were awesome and so I don't 
I've never like I get okay. He comes in and he does his his five moves or whatever. But like the atmosphere for the Savage match this time and the one in WrestleMania Seven were incredible. And so both, I, both Savages, Hogan, and the yeah. Root matches, like all of his big matches, were pretty darn good. It, it's yeah. it was just like consistency over and over. And I guess he didn't really draw when they put the ball when they put the rocket on him. But uh, what did you think of this whole like flare perfect storyline interweaving with them, Danny? I thought it was really awkward and weird at the time, and watching it back, it still comes across as uh, mm-hmm. really awkward and weird. Here you've got uh, Savage and uh, Warrior, who a year and a half earlier you know, were engaged in a blood feud leading to a retirement match at WrestleMania Seven. Yeah, this is uh, yeah the first big matchup since yeah. then. You know, with, with the Savage reinstated WWE cha- or WWF champion, uh, the, the the Flair stuff just felt a little extra they're both uh you know baby faces at this point why is neither one just saying oh yeah mr perfect he's not in my corner you know? i know why couldn't we just get a promo from either one of them in the, in the first half of the show when they were just like nope he's not in my corner uh, <laughs> well and that's nope. like the the second they both walk out which i guess we we probably shouldn't get ahead but like yeah, the second no, they both fine. walk in they're like well he's not in the warrior's corner and it's yeah like, jesus calm it, down boys so um we we then get on to virgil Virgil versus Nails. Poor Virgil, too, was like, Virgil was basically Coco Beware, sort of Tito Santana. It's like, you know when you see Virgil coming out, he's going to lose. <laughs> you know, he had the little run with DiBiase. Well, he beat, yeah, he beat yeah, DiBiase. He, he beat Deebs, he beat Deebs. At this, at this point, he's definitely jobber to the new. And they, they were kind of high on Nails early. But, man, is Nails horrible in the ring. I mean, he is so sloppy. He can't bump. If he's, let's say this, if he is trying to be this bad, and I know he's not because I've seen some of his previous work before he came in, he was in the AWA and other stuff, and then he was in WCW briefly after this as the prisoner. <laughs> um, he, If he's trying to be that bad, he's the greatest actor I've ever seen in my life. If he's trying to be like a stiff prisoner because he is Awful. I mean, he wins. He wins this match in three minutes with a chokehold. That first match, the LOD one, went just under twelve. It went eleven fifty-eight. And I mean, this is just sloppy. But even this, Jason, the crowd is like super into you know, Virgil kind of getting a comeback spot or like any little offense that Virgil gets in. Um, they, they're still into this match. Yeah, I mean, if, first of all, Virgil drops a too legit to quit during the promo. Oh, which the, is, the promo before, yeah. It's, it's pretty bad. It is. It, like, Vir- Virgil was never a good, like, he was, you realize that for years, DiBiase was giving great promos while Virgil was just sitting there saying nothing and then would, like, throw a $100 bill at somebody. But, like, he's just very stiff. I'm going to come and do this. I'm going to go for a win. Do unto others could be yeah. they do unto you. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just really bad cliche and... Uh, this match reminded me of a squash match that happened the next year at SummerSlam uh, when Ludwig Borg got beat up on yes. Marty Jannetty. Like there it was, we go. It was the the new guy, you know, taking on the previous guy. I mean, I know Snuka kind of did it for Undertaker too, and they just basically had him go out there and kick the crap out of a guy who was, you know, because I remember the Jannetty one. They're like, "This is a former Intercontinental Champion." <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, they, they so they got to give him somebody with a, with a little bit of credibility that'll still uh, let the guy go over. But yeah, I mean, it was you know, it, it, it was what it was. Yeah, Nails was big, and that's about all he had going for him. But I always wondered if he's an ex-convict, why he's still wearing his uh, orange jumpsuit. I know (laughs) Andy Dufresne wasn't in his jumpsuit five seconds after he got out of Shawshank. I I was reading uh, one of the the reviews on this somewhere, and they said, um, you know, like, in the lead-up to this, so we start to see Nails in May 92, and he comes on, you know, he's cutting promos, and he's got vignettes from jail. 
Um, and, and he's um, he's talking about how he's about to be released from jail, and that when he does, he's going to be taking his revenge out on the big boss man. And so that's like glad to see they still let him out of prison after he's making death threats on national TV. You know, but and didn't, uh, didn't nails he had a job lined up? Well, didn't nails uh, WWE career come uh, end to an end because of like? Assaulting Vince right after this that's yep. the that's the rumor is that he attacked Vince uh, following this and we did not see nails he was uh, around Survivor Series 92 he's there he has that big uh, the match with the boss man and then um, that's pretty much it for nails in the WWF he apparently uh, choked Vince he hated Vince <laughs> he actually testified against Vince in the steroid trial and he was like one of the more scathing testification um, that people that testified and he had the only reason what, what what hurt him is he's while he's testifying, he says, I effing hate Vince McMahon. Like the first thing he says. Yeah. So then everything else you say after that, you know, you, it's hard to believe when you just say, yeah. I really, I hate this guy. Um, nonetheless, nails. Um, nails, nails with a Z, right? Nails with a Z gets the win here. And they built him up for a little while for this little uh, feud with Boss Man, who, you know, what I will say about Boss Man, he was always someone who they had something for. You know, they had the Mountie stuff with him, which was fun. And then they had I the, nails. the Boss Man was good. I mean, I was like, I did too. He was a really good fit in the. In the mid card, and we'll uh, we'll see Boss Man and Nails hook up a little later in '92. Um, so now we get to um, oh, we get creepy Lord Alfred backstage. <laughs> Poor Lord Alfred. He was what he was like very um very in the mean gene. Um, whenever there was like a good looking girl back early on in, in WWF, he would always be very flirty with her and super uncomfortable a lot of the time. He's just looking around. Um, they wanted to give Lord Alfred a. a um, a, a look back here because they're in the UK. So getting him on the show a couple times, just looking around, he's trying to get in touch with with Macho Man. We're he's trying here to get the in locker touch. room of Mister <laughs> Perfect, who's trying to you know we want to see you for the ultimate. Yeah, like it, it, he's like subdued Lord Alfred too. You know, yeah. Yeah. they used to put him on color with Gorilla, like on random like MSG shows and stuff, and it was pretty funny because Gorilla's he's funny. Pretty, Gorilla's yeah. pretty slick, bro. Broadcasting and Lord Alfred be like, well, Gorilla, I must tell you, this Coco Beware is a very strong man. Yeah, you know, he's all into it stuff. Yeah, he was. I, I, I didn't. I, he's one of those guys at the time I didn't like him, but now I kind of do. He, he, you give, he gets you a laugh. You look yeah. back at him, and he's kind of funny. I think that's what Vince kept him around. They said that Vince just loved his accent, and he would come out, and Vince would go, <laughs> listen to him talk. You know. Um, so we uh, we get Sherry with Mean Gene. Um, and then we get all the setup and all the footage for the backstory for Shawn Michaels versus Rick Martel. This was fun. This had a good, um, kind of a good build, but it, what was weird about this match for the time, Jason, was we have a heel versus heel match, which yeah. you didn't see very often. We see a couple babyface versus babyface matches on this very show, yeah. but we yeah. don't see because the heel heel matches are a little bit harder because sometimes the crowd doesn't know what to do. Um, I think in this match, the crowd for the first few minutes was kind of figuring things out, but I, I think the gimmick kind of helped and Sherry kind of doing her stuff outside the ring. This was pretty fun. And we'll talk more about the end of the match and afterwards, but, um, it's okay. They, both these guys work good. You could tell that they're, they're really liking Shawn Michaels now and they're starting to build him up to be the next guy. He was actually supposed to win the IC title at this show, but they changed, he was going to beat Brett. But when they changed the venue and they ended up going to the UK, they put the title on the Bulldog. And then in a couple months, Sean ends up winning the title from the Bulldog on a Saturday night's main event. So um, fun. The stipulation was, you know, kind of goofy. They, the, the model was in a lot of these goofy stipulation yeah, matches. Don't hit too. him in the face, right? Yeah, don't hit him in the face. He has to be blindfolded. Uh, what do you think about this one, Jason? I, I will say I, I fell asleep watching it, um, but it was, I was watching it late 
night the other night, and this was where I <laughs> this is where I made it to, so I had to go back and rewatch it. Uh, and, and it was it was a, it seemed like it was a long match, and I, I love the move where Model like dodges a punch or a kick or whatever and does the car or the the cartwheel. Uh, no, not the well. He does a jumping jack. Jumping, jumping jack. jacks. Yes. <laughs> like it's 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 and it it does seem like by the end that he kind of takes the role of the the baby face in mm-hmm. this one, but um, yeah, I. I don't know the the Sherry with her just weird passing out thing at the end. I never kind of got if it was. I mean, if she was faking. I mean, obviously she's faking. But if she was like, was she? Was it? Were we supposed to know she was faking, or was it real? Or and it, it was like very dramatic. And I don't know. It just got a little. It, not my favorite match on the card, which I know was supposed to be kind of a good one. I always walked away from it thinking that she was. Faking, faking it, and we were supposed to think, "Oh, look at her! She's just looking for attention." That was—that's yeah. how I took it. And uh, you know, your mileage may vary. Um, her outfit, pretty risque oh for a nineteen ninety-two WWF. Uh, yeah, she's just got a thong and nothing in she's the. She's basically wearing assless chaps. Completely, and I, I remember Heenan had a line in there. That's the worst case of moths I've ever seen, and I just cracked up. <laughs> it's funny with heenan i mean you you kind of gotta jesse used to be so over the top with his humor like you you, you it, like heenan you can miss some of them if yes. you're not paying attention you, yeah you you're, you have to you're gonna say because he he's heenan is like that's the one thing about him is maybe with jesse like i think jesse kind of had his running gags and bobby yeah. did too but but bobby is so quick like he he there's there's no way a lot of his material he even had before He's just he's just going off the cuff and just responding and to reacting to everything that he's seeing, which is the best kind of comedy, you know, not the one that, like the pre-can stuff that you, you mess it up, you mess up the delivery. He he's just uh, just just unbelievable. So um um a- after the match, so they they're fighting um outside the ring. It ends up going to a double disqualification. Um, or, or early in the match, uh. Bobby says Rick, Sean, and him all have a way with the ladies, and then Vince says Lady Giraffes, <laughs> which was just like okay. Yeah. Um, um. We get the old spot with both of these guys where they're they're trying to give the cover and they pull the tights down, so we get some butt cheeks shown here from the both of the fellas. Um. We get the butt puns from Bobby and from Vince, and then that's when Sherry does the fake faint, and both men are fighting outside the ring down the really long aisle, and yeah. um. I'm a, fa- I'm a fan of the long aisle. Love in them. It feels like a bigger show. When just... when when Ultimate Warrior won the Intercontinental from Honky Tonk, man, it was like the shortest aisle ever. And I I thought that I know and I know that whole match was a short thing, but like it his run when it's a long run is so much cooler. Like it's just neater. Like some of those old aisles, they used to have to like go left, right, left. You know, like they jagged way. But I love a big, wide, long aisle because like WrestleMania four, like they people were groping Elizabeth. Like it was kind of gross. Yeah. Looking back. Um. So where are we? We are. Yeah. So they're in the aisle and. So double DQ, Sherry faints. So Sean goes and picks her up. And Sean is walking down the aisle. And man, at this point, her butt is just right out there in the camera when he's carrying her. And uh, Vince Vince asks us if, if it's Jupiter. And Brain says it's yeah. the moon. And uh, Vince starts to mention twin twin peaks. And then uh, Brain says it's twin cheeks. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and then... I mean, he's so Shawn Michaels is carrying Sherry out, and Rick Martel runs up from behind, 
and he nails Sean, yeah. and he just drops Sherry. I mean, hard, like pretty hard, right on the floor. She takes a dive. She goes rolling. So then they're fighting a little bit. Um, then Rick Martell goes and picks up Sherry, and he's walking down the aisle, and Sean runs from the back, and he nails Rick, and then Sherry falls again really hard. I mean, she takes a couple dives here and at the very end Danny Rick uh, Mortel comes out pours water on Sherry's face who's like freaking out and going crazy and runs back I mean this was more of like I guess more even about a, the match than it, more about the match this was about the storyline yeah, I'll, I'll say no hitting in the face is uh, probably one of my favorite uh, goofy stipulations <laughs> of all time yeah, yeah two yeah. Two lesser workers would have really struggled with something like this but they did a good job they were in and out Match ends up going uh, just over eight minutes here. That's all it was. It felt like longer, right? I My think, but God, I think I, thought I think it was like a twenty minute deal. You get an extra like five or six after the yeah. bell, you know, with them in the aisle, running up and down, back and forth, pouring the water on her, all that stuff. Um, we then get the nasty boys. They're uh, cutting a promo. They're making fun of Sherry. They talk about the tag team titles. Nothing, nothing uh, much really here. Um, as we get to the Beverly Brothers with G- the genius Jason, who I know is one yeah. of your favorites. The fan. genius, love he, me some Lanny Poffo. He is great. Um, and they face the natural disasters. And you know, I look at this match on paper, and I think probably a lot of other people would look at it in paper and go, "Eh, okay." Uh-huh. Ma- Beverly Brothers natural disasters. This was a, a much better match than I remembered, and it was much better than I kind of ex- was expecting. It, they, the natural disasters they kept up a pretty quick pace for them. Um, the Beverly brothers they don't are... seem like tag guys, do they? No, no. Yeah. And the Beverly brothers are a, are a good tag team. They're just like a solid heel tag team. They're good workers. They have the, um, you know, the genius in there cheating with them. Um, it, you know, Bo, it was pretty typical tag match for the most part. They're working over typhoon for a while. And then earthquake comes in and, um, and one of the Beverly brothers had just been been handed the metal scroll from the the genius, and he hits Typhoon in the back, and so he's pinning Typhoon. Earthquake comes in, and he drops this elbow on the back of his head while he's on top of Typhoon. Yeah. Oh my god! I was like, "Jeez, this thing was nasty." And um, and then after that, it's basically Earthquake dominating the rest of the match. And you know what, Danny? I kind of forgot about how over Earthquake was for the next. Few months here and then even all the way Up into like the very end of his Run I think he leaves for a little bit he comes Back he has like a little late run in like 94 where he's like uh, Pitted up against Yokozuna too Um but he was really over Here this uh, this was better than I than I remember It being Yeah and I don't know uh, if it was just the Pairing with Typhoon or people who are Just uh you're kind of buying sympathetic Earthquake is just a really tough Monster baby face but uh yeah, I, I remember being into him, and people people were into him just two years after he was uh, the most hated guy on the roster. And uh, yeah, the, the stuff with Yokozuna, he got to show off his sumo chops a couple of years later. But uh, I, I don't have anything to back this up, but legitimately, he seemed like he might have been one of the toughest guys in the uh, in the Federation at the time. Danny, I'm glad you said that, because I have a note that said, I feel like both Earthquake and Typhoon are kind of legit tough guys. Uh, Earthquake we know was I mean like he was a sumo guy mm-hmm. And just kind of a, a bad dude But uh, three out of the four guys in the ring Had a mullet I think Earthquake the only one without one <laughs> uh, You know we're kind of Phasing out of that Yeah look. except uh, for Crush 
<laughs> oh, crushes is majestic. Yeah. I, uh, the, the thing I always weirdly remember about the Beverly brothers is they're from Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is the town next to where Thistledown racetrack. Oh, is nice. nice. And so I, I remember driving to Thistledown one time when we went to dinner in Shaker Heights and I go, Oh, this is where the Beverly brothers are from. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think you guys, uh, summed it up, uh, perfectly. And, and, like I said, what, you know, when I jumped in and said, like, they don't seem like a tag. I think we're just so accustomed to tag teams kind of, you know, the aerial tag team was real popular yep. back then, obviously the rockers and stuff like that. And so these guys were very much not that, but both like pretty agile big guys. Like they weren't, you know, they weren't Andre and Haku or, or something like that from just a couple of years before. So, I, you know, they, they, uh, they worked an earthquake to me. I mean, he, he died when he was 42. It's hard to, yeah. to imagine that because he seemed like he was around for quite a while. Yeah, he he goes to WCW for a while. He's the shark, and uh, he's <laughs> in right. the he's in the, the the faces of fear. I believe that uh, they uh, the alliance to end Hulkamania and all those things. And then he comes back, and um, he's in the oddities. He's Golga, who's always wearing the South Park shirt. You know, like years later, um, and he's he's wearing the mask. He's got he's got, got always got the Cartman shirt on. Um, uh, yeah, this was this was pretty fun. I much, much better than I had remembered um, when we were uh, when we were kind of going through. And I always want to. I just always whenever I see the Beverly Brothers, I have to just say the Brothers Beverly. You know, in the oh, in, right, in the yeah. genius voice, like the Brothers Beverly. Here <laughs> at SummerSlam, they are. Yeah, to me, that's who they are. They're not the Beverly Brothers. They're the Brothers Beverly. Oh, and true. yeah, they had a good little heel run. Um. Uh. At this time in uh in in WWE. they weren't actually brothers, right? No, no. Mikey oh. knows, and then uh, I'm not sure the other one off the top of my head, but yeah, they're 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 fun. It was uh, let's see, it was yeah, Mike uh, Mike Enos and Wayne Bloom. There we go. Nice, nice Wayne Bloom. Nice. So we get to Mean Gene. He's backstage with the Bushwhackers. This is just a quick little promo. The Bushwhackers and the Nasty Boys, who we saw earlier. Had a dark match on the show, so they're they're there more than just cutting these little goofy promos. But he talks about whose corner Mister Porfrey was going to be in. Um, Mean Gene asks Luke about a, a dentist selling him a London Bridge, and they ask about a royal dinner, and they talk about the royal throne, uh, referencing that it's a toilet, and um, and then we get more Lord Alfred. He thinks Mister Perfect is inside Alter Warrior's dressing room, and he says, "I'm going to go against my journalistic instincts, and I'm going to open this door." And then he opens the door and gets slammed in his face. Um, so yeah. it's the and then he and then he's like aghast by it. Yeah. Oh my goodness! It oh, never. Oh, yeah. Oh, never. yeah. You literally walked into a dressing room, dude. What do you expect? Yeah. yeah. You just open this door. So the next match, I. Repo Man versus Crush. I wish they would have been been talking about how these were two former t tag team partners just a year ago. You know, two guys that were in demolition together. Uh -huh. Repo Man used to be Smash, and I will say, Repo Man was never a character that was going to be like the the champ. But he did a. You don't know it's the same guy. You know, you don't you don't look at Repo looks Man and go there. for sure. And, yeah, and that's Smash because he's always like hunched over. Uh -huh. You know, when he's a repo man, he's always hunched over. He's sneaking around. He did a really good job of like um, making sure you knew that this, this was not the same guy. And um, Crush was super popular early on. They really liked Crush. V Crush was uh, reportedly on one of those short lists of guys that um, maybe one of the next WWE champs when uh, when Ultimate Warrior had to leave and when all the uh, the steroid stuff was going on. Even though Crush is kind of a big guy too. But uh, Jason, I know you're going to mention this mullet is majestic. 
Yeah, it's it's a thing of beauty, especially blowing in that London breeze with the outdoor. <laughs> but uh, the thing I never got about Repo Man was like, I, I guess I didn't I didn't think of Repo Men as like thieves. Like I just think they just go show up in your driveway and take your car back because you owe it to the lender kind of yeah. thing. And so I, I never got if he was like supposed to be like a crook or even even you know who knows. But I love how he's I think he's billed from the Motor City. <laughs> which is great and i mean it, it is kind of one of those gimmicks like the red rooster or like you know i mean a hundred other ones where they probably gave it to him and he probably realized well i'm on my way out now so i guess yeah. i'm going to do this for a year and uh you know but, but i mean i know a lot of the guys in the business like i i think they have a better outlook on that kind of stuff. Like they're happy to be working. They're happy to mm -hmm. do it. They know they're not a, a top guy anymore or something like that. It's but, like an actor, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, sometimes you, like well, someone's got to pay the fat guy sometimes or the ugly that, guy or, you know, or like whatever. And it, hap it happens in, in modern wrestling too, right? Like Kofi was kind of lingering around for the last few yeah. years and then had like an incredible run. And I, I think the fan base now they're like, they like gets like, I wouldn't be surprised if like Cesaro came back and made 100%. a big run because he, the fans eventually they like the underdog and and if they see you paying your dues like that i think they'll kind of get back behind you they were never obviously going to get behind repo man <laughs> <laughs> when was the last gimmick like who was the last real true gimmick i mean i know the undertaker's i mean he's not even really a gimmick at this point i mean like everybody is pretty much just themselves now right i know no way jose was just released but that was a gimmick if nothing else was yeah yeah like there's, I'm trying to think, they, in, like, AEW, they have, like, the Dark Order, which is kind mm -hmm. of like a dark, like, group, and yet, for the most part, we haven't had too many, many gimmicks. I always remember when they say that, like, there's a, one of the documentaries that Pat Patterson's in, and he said, yeah, you know, he said some people didn't look like a wrestler, and so you just put something on them, and then, boom, there you are. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, he did. <laughs> oh, I mean, have you ever seen the video of Hulk Hogan's first uh, match ever in WWE? It's the funny, Gino, go to YouTube and look up Hulk Hogan's first WWF match. He's the guy he's wrestling is it's literally like they found the plumber from up downstairs and we're like, Hey, do you want to go into the ring real quick? And the comments underneath the video are so funny. They're like, Oh, I'll never forget this night. One of the biggest nights when Luis Castillo finally came, you know, the comments are so funny. I'm going to DM both. Okay, guys please, right please. Now. I want to Gotta gotta have check that one out. But uh, I know the match. I, I don't know the comments. So. Oh, the it's uh, I I, la I I watched it like three days ago. I laughed for twenty minutes reading through the. It's it's so funny. So um, Crush has the uh, the head squeeze move with his finisher. This wasn't long, but the crowd was was pretty into it. So um, I think we were on you, Danny. What what, were, what did you think about this? And then kind of like the Crush character overall. Yeah. At the time, I didn't even realize this was demolition exploding. And right? uh, you know, yeah, God, God bless Barry Darso. He, uh, he just completely got into the Repo Man gimmick way over the top more than most other guys would, and he he killed him. Like you said, never was going to be a main eventer, but uh, thirty years later, everyone remembers Repo Man. <laughs> And I always loved, like, in uh, Survivor Series, you know, he'd be in the group, and he'd be kind of in the back and, like, holding up his rope, like, look, I got my rope, guys. <laughs> yeah. Just doing yeah. the lick cackle. The awful laugh. Oh, Repo Man. Yeah, he had one where he, uh, in 93, where it's, like, a, a little small feud where he stole Macho Man's hat on Monday Night Raw, and they went, <laughs> and then it was, like, that one, like, extended over, like, two different oh, shows. Oh, I mean, th those, those, like, 93 Raws are combination awesome. I mean, because it's mostly jobber matches. Yep. 
And then so they and and they only did like you know a handful of matches a night. So there was a ton of like, you know, go- doink throwing water on people, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, lots of getting the storylines progressed. Um, yeah. you know, that was just kind of their new superstars, their new primetime wrestling. Uh, in uh, when Monday Night Raw came out, so we are up to. Mean Gene backstage with the build up for the Warrior versus Macho. And this is where I said, yeah, like, why no Warrior Watcher, Warrior, Warrior or Macho promo? You know, we're, we get the footage of, I mean, we get a ton of footage here. Um, all the superstars stuff and the, the primetime wrestling stuff that built this match up. Flair, Perfect, the Nasty Boys, Attack Ultimate Warrior and Macho Man. At They had a show the week before that was called the Summer Slam Spectacular that was like a, a build up for this show to try to, you know, sell some pay per views and get people. Um, interested in all the the major storylines, and I mean this crowd was crazy for Warrior who runs to the ring, and he's wearing his almost flesh colored singlet. But if you could tell, this one is different than the one that he had wear he was wearing in some of the flashbacks, which you couldn't even tell the difference between his skin and the singlet. This one is at least a little more like pink, a, a little more difference between your actual skin color. Um, he he got a massive response. Macho Man's response was bigger in that he kind of was getting both boos and cheers immediately. This crowd, right off the bat, seemed like they were pretty pro warrior. And what I love before we even get into this, the, between the two guys, we have yellow, pink, green, orange, blue, white, black, and tan on their costumes. I mean, we just have an absolute rainbow of colors, bright as possibly can be. Crowd crazy from the very beginning Jason I forgot how good this match was I really did and you had mentioned Warrior You know a little earlier on He I I mean maybe because people see these matches And they would they wanted him to be able to Kind of hold this standard all the time but In a lot of his big matches He was really good there weren't a lot of like Bad sloppy moves Here the pace was good there was A story in here I I really really like this Match you could, you could tell how good a warrior match was by how much of his face paint was off by the end of the <laughs> by the end of the event. But no, I he, he he to me he's a big match, ass in the seats kind of guy. And he he did he ever not get a pop? I mean, even WrestleMania four when he comes out against Hercules, he gets he gets a cheer, and it was a total like between rounds kind of throwaway match. And so to me, he's a a, a total Hall of Famer superstar, etc. I the thing I noted. And the opening is that Vince not only once but twice does the the ultimate warrior. Like yeah. Vince loves saying it like that. Yeah. And what what cracks me up is Vince. It becomes very obvious once you know he's the owner and promoter. Listening to him when he does play by play, because he becomes a uh, a, a marketer. A ch- yes. Like he and really we never knew he, this. We didn't yeah, know this. Yeah. Oh, I had no clue. Nobody until did. Years, no, years I mean, later. Yeah. Nobody really knew until it was '97 when yeah. it started becoming like you know night late into '96 because Diesel would say things sometimes. But that, yeah. No, it's it's just it's interesting to watch and listen because he he's obviously coming in after or coming at it. My other favorite thing Vince does during the commentary is when he gets really worked up to the two count and then he calms way down. And there's another pin. He's got him to two and one, and he kicks out. <laughs> you know, like he, he he works up to the two where he's screaming, and then when the guy kicks out, he goes and he kicks out, and he and he like really really brings it down. But no, I think it's I think it's an amazingly good match. It's it's obviously the undercard feature, even though it is the championship and. To me, like I said, the whole perfect flair thing. If I mean it, it, it's a story, but I didn't think it added anything. No, 
I'd go so far as to say it's subtracted. I mean, Macho Man yeah. and Warrior, they had a amazing chemistry together. We saw it a year and a half before, and we were seeing it for uh, the first 15, 20 minutes of this match. They were they were out there doing it, even though uh, they were wearing outfits that uh, God knows why. But <laughs> <laughs> Those were bright, weren't they, Danny? <laughs> Holy they moly. Were. They, they both had these iconic outfits at the WrestleMania 7 affair. You remember the uh, warrior with the airbrushed of him and Savage on his, Randy in the purple and white, and now this is just like a paintball exploded on Randy. But uh, yeah, no, they're they're out there having a heck of a match, and then uh, the perfect uh, Fleer stuff had to get told, and that just completely, completely killed it for me. Also, I remember back at the time, my other thought was, uh, hey, didn't this guy give Warrior five flying elbows and uh, couldn't beat Warrior then? How's he going to beat him now? With one, yeah, I, with I, one. I never, thought, yeah. I, I, I never thought Savage had a chance. That's, I kind of felt the same way. I remember, especially when young watching this. And yeah, I think the only the only thing that would have been better about this match is if we would have had a, a cleaner, better ending. But the the reason why I think we didn't was because Warrior was supposed to turn heel, and he did not want to do that at this point. So the the plan was going to be to get the belt onto Flair, and then for from Flair it was going to be to Warrior. Warrior and Flair were going to have a little bit more more of a feud. Warrior was going to win the belt there, and Warrior ends up leaving the company in November and. You know, the the belt goes to Brett the Hitman Hart not long, which is kind of crazy when you think about where Brett was just, you know, six months before this. Um, yeah, so a lot of the matches, you know, Vince and Bobby wondering whose corner um, Ric Flair and Mr. Perfect are going to be in. Um, the Warrior looks to have the pin at one point, and the ref get, with a really slow count after getting hit. Rep, uh, Hepner got beat up in here, too. He took a couple nasty uh, bumps and it falls outside of the ring. Macho to pile driver. Then we're seeing Flair, uh, Flair and Perfect starting to get involved, and Flair locks in the figure four on Savage outside the ring. Perfect and Flair crush Savage, um, and so all hell starts to break loose. And then it, it's a DQ. And then after the match, Warrior picks up Macho Man, hands him the belt, helps him up. They celebrate, and uh, and so it's like it, it's a it's a fun moment. You know, Warrior's kind of like repaying the moment maybe that Hogan he's trying to be the guy, you know, and and the face of the company. But Brain says, yeah, but Flair should be there. He should be the champion. <laughs> right away. Right away he says it. Um and Vince, this is like where you're talking about Jason, where Vince is going absolutely crazy just praising Warrior and Macho. But he he this was a great match. Like the I think the praise was worth it. It just it just stunk that we didn't get the clean finish. Yeah. I mean I don't know. I still remember it as a really good match. They, they, there was yeah. a lot of uh, kind of unsatisfying endings, you know. I mean, because you can't switch the title every pay per view. No, at least back, I mean you can now, but it, it was interesting. I was looking at the the list of Intercontinental title holders, and Wikipedia breaks it down by days. And it's so funny how back in the old days, like if you had the title, you had it for like 180 or 200 or sometimes yep. more days. And now like there is just a litany of guys that had it for a week yep. and they toss it around and, you know, and there's more titles of course, but, um, you know, you back then, you, you know, you couldn't, you know, because they didn't have to fill 10 hours a week of, of content. So, you know, they had to kind of drag out these, uh, these feuds and stuff. So I, I, I don't, it, you know, not the most satisfying ending, but still, I think should be remembered as a really good match. And, and, and they certainly had the crowd fired up back when I was in grade school. This might be the same for you guys. I was able to, uh, you know, tell you, yeah, here's the history of the WWF championship from 19, oh, yep. 1995. Yeah. Now I couldn't go back no past shot. 
three years. A hundred percent. I could tell you everything. And it's funny. Things felt, you know, like you look at like LOD felt like they were around forever and they're barely here. You know, someone like Flair who was just barely here. Like you see some of these, it feels like they're around for so long a lot of times because they're in one or two of these big storylines and they're yeah. very rarely there. Like they weren't even, it just, everything felt way, Dusty, way different. Dusty than, wasn't all there. No, Dusty either, yeah. was barely around, you know, it just felt way, way different. And, and it was different because they just didn't have as much content to have to fill. It just, you know, they, they, it's hard and I, we, we get hard on them, but I, and, and, it's hard to fill all that content, but they they they're recently they haven't done themselves a favor. So you know, yeah. I, I kind of like will see both sides of the both sides. Well, they, of it. And they actually they I mean they had to do more content in terms of shows. Yeah, they just they just had less TV. So I mean, you could go do the same show six nights in a week, and nobody would tell the difference. You know. <laughs> One thing that uh, Warrior or in that before we get to the next match, uh, he says. Uh, Warrior gets the belt and he brings it in And Bobby said he's going to waffle Savage's head Right off his shoulders which was great What what does Warrior say to Savage When they're kind of face to face the beginning of the match I feel like you can almost get what he's saying But you can't quite And I'm curious if either one of you guys No I couldn't catch it No No, but um, fun Fun really I mean The good show like to, To go from being an okay show to a great show You have to have like one really solid match And we're really lucky because this show has two Like yeah. really good matches This was an excellent match and the other main event that we'll get to in a few minutes Really really delivers So yeah by the time we get to Survivor Series The next pay-per-view Brett the Hitman Hart is the champ Which mm-hmm. just seems so weird Um, He's losing you know in the main event here Losing the IC title And he had never even really been a main eventer At this point So um, we go backstage with Perfect With Flair with Mean Gene um, They have a plan B they say they're going after the warrior and then they're going to go after Savage. And um 92 93 was a pretty big year for Harvey Whippleman who was a <laughs> doctor doctor, doctor yeah. Harvey Whippleman who was uh he was the manager for Sid and he introduced Sid in the main event of uh WrestleMania 8 in 92 and then he brings in uh Kamala here and then later he has Giant Gonzalez who he also brings in but he basically Dr. Harvey Whippleman kind of kicks off a feud with The Undertaker so it's uh, he introdu- uh, Whippleman introduces Kamala and Kimchi and Bobby immediately Thinks that being in front of 80,000 people Could scare Kamala he says uh, I used to uh, find Kamala legitimately Scary me like, too I, I, I thought And I actually kind of liked him like he to me He was like a great villain type He I mean Kamala was the, the problem with Kamala at this point is just He was just a little bit past his prime but yeah, yeah. You know Ten years before this, he's in he's in main events all over the country with Andre the Giant in steel cage matches in like eighty one, eighty two. I think he, he did a bunch with Hogan. He too, did have a, like, he did yeah. have a bunch with Hogan. Um, you know, in like the not pay per view, but I think he had some feuds in the you know mid eighties when Hogan yeah, was, had yeah. the belt too. So they, they working a program together, mm-hmm. I think they called. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was. He, I, I like he he had some cachet. You knew yeah. the name, oh, you yeah. knew who he was. He didn't just seem like. Generic next guy to face the Undertaker. He, he he was someone to bring in, um, and I mean this match is short. This is just Undertaker. It's in the with, worst spot, right? I mean, yeah, right after the big match, and it's in between yeah. in between the other big match, so it's in the oh. death spot. Um, but we see Taker early offense. He climbs and walks the ropes, uh, top ropes a few times. He's outside the ring. He goes for Kimchi and Whippleman. Kamala gets the advantage shortly. Then Taker gets control, choke slam, flying clothesline. He goes for the tombstone, and then Kimchi comes in the ring and interferes. I believe Kimchi was Steve Lombardi at yeah, this point, yeah, yeah, um, the Brooklyn Brawler. So uh, 
Taker wins by DQ Kamala attacks him And uh, after the match um, Kamala goes off the top rope Body splash And then Taker sits up But I mean that's pretty athletic for Kamala A big man like that To go off the top rope Body slash And then the look that Kamala gives Is one of those looks that you see He he did a great job yeah. Conveying that scared look I mean he looks scared shitless And and he kind of fast walk Jogs away as the Undertaker Kind of slowly walks after him uh, Jason these guys would battle uh, At Survivor Series in a casket match But this was like three minutes it was just to kind of keep their feud going And you hit the nail on the head It's just in a bad spot But I, I agree with you about that The The look, is the, it's great Because Paul Bear is who tips off the Undertaker When to sit up You you see Paul Bear smack the ring And Undertaker sits up right when he hears that You know, that's when he knows to kind of make the move But uh, Kamala's look to me is so great And it like as you said, it literally started the buildup for the casket mm-hmm. match because we now knew that Kamala was scared to death of the Undertaker and eventually would become scared to death uh, of caskets and everything associated with him. Uh, Danny, I want to address this to you because Gino, no offense, but you're you're a thinner build gentleman. Me and Danny are uh, are larger guys. <laughs> Danny, did you do the Kamala belly slap quite often as a younger man? I did. Um, that and the truffle shuffle. <laughs> I. I had some self-respect. I didn't do that one, but no, I, I used to seriously. I would walk around all the time and just and like hit, hit my belly like Kamala. <laughs> uh, also, also on this match, um, I, I could be wrong, but this felt to me like it was probably the first time we got that really big-time Undertaker entrance. Great point. Uh, Great point. Out in the, uh, the hearse. you know, in the British hearse, uh, you know, down Wembley, you see the casket inside, and uh, it, it just felt kind of like the type of entrance we get today with the Undertaker. This was fun. It was quick. Like any of the, and what's great about this show, any of the stuff that was just kind of eh or just there was all quick. Yeah. Like there's nothing that drags. I think you it's know, one of the better death spot matches in a pay per view. A hundred percent. Because it's just you get the you get the entrance, you get the pomp. There's there's like a, a couple of quote unquote WrestleMania moments here at SummerSlam, right? The Kamala yeah. look, Undertaker coming down to the ring, the sit up. It, it's just it, it's it's good. It keeps their build going. This just went three minutes and thirty nine seconds, and the match before that, the uh, the Warrior Savage, they went over twenty six minutes. They went twenty six wow. fifteen, which great job by Warrior to stay. I mean, he didn't look like he was tired or blown up or anything at all uh, throughout that match. So, um, Taker moves on to Survivor Series, and then we'll get to see like a new wrinkle that would be kind of part of the Undertaker's career forever. The casket match, um, which is you know a huge. He, any one of his big feuds, he generally has one of those main event time. So we get uh, the British Bulldog. He's with Sean Mooney. He's cutting a promo. And the thing that I thought was weird about this, why is he standing in front of that bulletin board? It's like he's standing in front of a Wembley bulletin board that's got like flyers about things that are coming up this week, which is so bizarre. It's like he's not, there's no WWF anything. It, it, and there's like, I was trying to, it was distracting to me because I was trying to like read the writing on it and what it was and I couldn't figure it out. It was just stupid things that we noticed, you know, when we're looking around. Um, and uh, Bulldog hopes the family will be okay. When he steps in the wing, ring with Brett, he never met Brett. And that's what I think. I don't think Bulldog looks messed up in the match, but he kind of looks a little messed up in this promo. Like knowing that now, when you see him, his eyes are a little a little jacked I up. He looked really off in this promo. Watching yeah. retrospect. Yeah, um, but again, he doesn't like when he gets in the ring. It all looks pretty good. And then um, Jason, I thought, and we'll get your thoughts on both these promos before we get into the match, uh, or before we get into the uh, the next, I guess, segment. 
Brett was never a guy that, and, and he's my all-time favorite. And he was never a guy that I would say was the best promo. This was a damn good promo though from Brett. He's really intense. You know, he talks about because I think it's a it's an easy promo for him because it's all stuff like, hey, it's real. I introduced you to your to my sister. You're kind of coming up the ranks. Now this is going to break the family up a little bit. Did you need to do this? I really this was one of my favorite Brett the Hitman Hart promos. It's just there's nothing like special about it, but it's just intense and it's pretty pointed. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I, again, I didn't realize till I got older that Brett wasn't a great promo because to mm-hmm. me, he always he always just looked really cool. And when you're a kid, to me, like that's kind of enough, right? Like the sunglasses yeah. and the leather jacket and the dark hair, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, I never had a real issue with his promo. I mean, they're a little bit. He's not. He's not over the top, which, like I said, hindsight now is actually good to me because there was a there was a period of time there where you had to scream in a promo unless you were Jake the Snake. Uh, Or or maybe, you know, even honky would sometimes, but, um, I, I did have a little bit of an objection to Diana's speech where she was talking about being, she gets to be on the front lines of war and all like, it seemed, I was like, that seems a little, I mean, it's a wrestling match, a little much. Yeah. 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 But I mean, I know she's got to sell it, but, uh, and and, like every time they pan to her, like, she just looked like, she's just like, Oh, David, no, David, you know, like she was too, like she, she did a good job. Like I will say. Whether it was her or whether she was directed this, yeah, she yeah. she was like acting like someone was like about to die. I actually thought she did a good job, like like lit, like making it seem big, like a big deal. But it was they made it seem like too big of a deal. Just like you said, like this seemed like someone was about to pass away, kind of a thing. Versus like my oh, this is a, actually kind of a great moment. I mean, my brother and my husband are in the main event here. Like this is kind of cool, you know. Like it, so. Danny, what'd you think about the, you know, we got the, we got the bulldog promo, we got the Brett, and then we get, um, we'll see Diana a little bit later on, but what about those two guys setting up? No, it, it felt real. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you get that kind of real feeling of wrestling back then when everything was a gimmick or a cartoon character, but, uh, you know, here's a couple of guys, their family, here's the woman that connects the two of them, and you, you felt it. So we get a Rowdy Roddy Piper sighting. We have the uh, the bagpipes are being played by the Balmoral Highlanders, and then Bobby says, "I've always hated hard rock." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Rowdy Roddy comes out and plays with them. And I just want, I just, I could notice that he was for sure focused and intense. On uh, he kind of had a little bit of a solo at the beginning too. Piper, he was, he looked really focused and intense on playing that first part right. And uh, Bobby says, "They're certainly not the the Rockets." And uh, what a windbag this guy is. But the crowd was going crazy. They love Piper. And Piper legit played, right? That wasn't... Uh, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But he's not Scottish. Like, he had to... He, he literally learned to get into the character, right? <laughs> That's dedication right there. My, uh, Gino, I don't want to get ahead of you, but I, I just no, don't want you do. to be, I don't want you to be able to steal one of my favorite moments. And that's when Howard Finkel, uh, introduces Lennox Lewis. He goes, Lennox Lewis. And it just cracks <laughs> me up the way he says, he, he emphasizes Lewis, brought to the ring by Lennox Lewis. Thank you. I, I can actually go home. Now. No, that was all I wanted. No, you had to. Um, so this was just a moment to get Piper out. And this was the last time we see Piper for a few years. He doesn't show back up till 94 WrestleMania 10 when he's actually the uh, one of the special guest referees for the, the main event there of uh, a Brett versus Yokozuna. So Sean Mooney's with Diana kind of talking to that little promo that Jason talked about a moment ago. Um, but she's definitely uh, playing this very, very seriously. She said she's not concerned with who wins. She just wants the bond with her family. And Mooney is 
I will say this. Like, I liked Moody. He was funny. He's goofy. He's just terrible when he's asking people questions because he's like, for he's like forcing what he wants them to say, you know. And he was doing this with like Mary Tyler Moore, and like anytime he has a celebrity, he's like asking them questions that they have no idea. Like what they're gonna, they're not gonna know the answers to this. So he definitely just like really lays it on. Um, and because WWF was coming to be such such a big draw on Sky Sports, Bulldogs hugely popular over there. Um, he main evented a lot of those European tours. And because of that popularity, he got this shot. So it is main event time, and we get that huge pop for Double the bull oh, d- for Lennox, and then for Bulldog, well, yeah, and for Brett, and, and then for Brett right after yeah. too, because the, the, they didn't really want to boo Brett until it, until it kind of got into it, and until he, he refused to shake the hand. Yeah, until he refused, and he started <laughs> to kind of play bad guy. Um, Bobby said he could care less who wins because it's just these two good guys that he hates, which is funny. Um, and then I noticed this with Brett He did it a lot but you notice it even more When he kisses the belt and Bobby yeah. says I wonder if he's kissing it goodbye or just kissing it I love when Bobby kind of has Because I, then I always wonder It was poetic Yeah because with, with some of the announcers They don't want to know the results They want to call it like they don't know And then with other of the announcers obviously They know everything that's going to go on And they want to be able to, to kind of set it up a little bit more And I always would wonder that with Brain When he would say that this kind of a thing Or like when Hogan came out But whose side is he on You know for the uh, NWO um, So I mean this this match was just It was billed as kind of like The power of the Bulldog Versus the technical skills of Brett And Bulldog really shows his wrestling ability here I mean we get a fast pace all match Brett Bulldogs the Bulldog at one point, which is which was great. Um, and and then he starts to embrace the heel role a little bit. He tosses Bulldog outside the ring. He jumps over the top rope with a unique move to, to kind of nail Bulldog. And he works on him outside the ring. Bobby says, uh, because he's British, it makes him a quitter. <laughs> and then uh, Brett flings Bulldog um, back in a, a back body drop, and um. Let's see, Bulldog with a counter. There was a near fall. Brett's working on him for a while. There was one thing that I noticed too. Did you guys hear the whistle in this in the crowd that kept going on right here? Like over and over. There's this loud whistle that was starting to just annoy the hell out of me. And it yeah. kept going off repeatedly. The, the worst one ever is the 88 Rumble with that lady with the megaphone oh. in the first match. She's the worst in the history of the WWF. Worst fan ever. Terrible. Um, so or, then worse we, than the Bulldog's going to win whether he wants to or not, kid. Yeah, that guy's that guy's going to live in infamy no matter what. <laughs> so, us. so we see um, Diana. They're showing her a whole lot. Um, Brett's sister and Bulldog's you know wife. They're back and forth there. I mean, we get Brett hits a German suplex and and he just misses uh, the the pin. And then at this point, Brain's kind of excited because this match is really good. Brain even goes, "Are you kidding me?" Like he's starting to get really into it now. Um, and he says, only one man I know who can get up from all these moves, and that's Ric Flair. <laughs> Is there anything they haven't done? Yeah. So he's he's impressed at this point. Um, suplex from the top rope, superplex, near fall. Brett locks in the sharpshooter. He looks like he's about to win. And uh, Brain says he's about to give it up and have some tea. And and he's he's good. He's he, Brain's starting to really get into it now. This was this was one of his better matches. I think it took him and Provence kind of a little while to get comfortable um, together. It wasn't his, like... Is smooth with Gorilla right off the bat, um, but I mean this is really good, and the the finish was really unique. Bulldog ends up you know out wrestling the wrestler yeah. here, 
which is great. And then you think Brett's going to turn heel after the match. We get the big celebration. I mean, Jason, this is good. I mean, this is a hell of a good match on a hell of a good show. This one ends up going 25 minutes. We had two matches. The two main event matches both go over 25 minutes. They and they didn't feel dragging long at all. Kind of like the opposite of uh, sort of what you said with the the Shawn Michaels like match uh, or Martel match. When when you personally don't like a match that much, it feels like it goes on forever. These two felt like they were 10 minute matches that were 25. They were great. Well, and the, uh, the again the the theme of the show to me is the crowd. Like the audience in this. Per- particular one i mean they never let down and they're living and dying on every you know pinfall and uh I, I really think that makes a a difference just for the overall feel of it but i mean everybody's obviously so rooting for bulldog they get that big payoff and like you said i thought the finish was very very cool in the sense that it was i felt like it wasn't a move we saw all that no. often and and the way bulldog hooks it it looks impossible to kick out of uh to me like like there's no chance anybody can you get can't. out because He's literally sitting on you with with those massive guns, like holding on it. Like he, there's it. It just to me, it looked like a good way for Brett to lose because it just looked like he, the guy made just a great move, and you got to hats off to him. And can I give you one of my favorite brain lines that we didn't Please. mention? Was uh, I don't know why he lets Whoopi Goldberg do his hair. <laughs> he did. Yeah. And kind of, a, by the way, kind of, a, I mentioned it earlier, but kind of a methodical start to this one, right? Like yeah. A number of kind of chokes and, and, you know, hand locks. There's a couple times where he, you know, uh, Bulldog's got him in like an arm bar, Brett slams him, but he still holds on to it kind of thing. And, and I mean, really just feeling each other out. But be, like I said, because of that crowd, it still feels important. It doesn't feel like it's a lull in the match. DK, where are you at on this one? Um, no, this was just, uh, Great match, uh, start to finish, and more amazing. Knowing what we know now about the condition the bulldog was in that night, and uh, just uh, yes, so memorable, so so great seeing the uh, UK crowd get their moment with uh, with bulldog. One thing that I kind of parallel this to a bit is Brett versus Roddy Piper a couple of months yeah. ago at WrestleMania Eight. You kind of also had you know they they made. Obviously, this is the more personal uh, relationship here, but they 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 went for that personal route with the uh, Piper match at Mania Eight, where uh, Bret Hart won the Intercontinental Title, and I just kind of view these those two matches just in my own head as kind of like a little series of uh, you know, personal matches for Bret in '92, and uh, you know I think this was the better of the two. This was fun, man. I mean, this was a good, really good way to end this show, and you. Like you see it with Hogan in you know in the the Warrior match, we see it with with Brett in this match. We see it uh, as you mentioned with Piper. Like the, Piper's best match might have been in losing to Brett Hart, and Brett says this is his favorite match of all time. And I think I think probably because Brett knows some things that we don't know about how much he had to do to really carry uh, Bulldog to get through this match. But it doesn't seem like that. It doesn't like the bulldog. Well, and I'm sure it's special to him. I mean, it's his brother-in-law yeah. who's gone. You know. Yeah, and it just it seems like these two guys that are on the top of their game, and it's a bummer. Like if you if you watch this match, you would have never thought that that British bulldog wasn't going to be a WWF champion one day. Yeah. Like you watch this and you go, oh, definitely he's going to be in that in that grouping of guys that's always there, and and he and he's and gone he, by Survivor Series. Yeah, yeah, he didn't he didn't have the long. 
title run that was kind of status quo back then either, right? He was only for two no. months, I think. Yeah, two months. He he is on that list with a bunch of the guys that ends up testing positive for the the oh. HGH and all that stuff. I think with Warrior too, and I, I think the initial reports were forty nine percent of the WWF tested positive when they well, did the first Michaels round. Michaels had to give up his IC title once mm-hmm. for steroids, right? Yeah, yeah, and and so it was guys you didn't even you didn't even think of. Um, there was one line in uh. In, right before the match, when Vince was promoting Lennox, Lennox Lewis, Lewis versus Razor Roddick, and, and Bobby says he's fighting Razor Ramon. It's not even like it's, it's like if you read the stuff, it's not it doesn't come off funny, but it's just the way that Bobby delivers it in the moment and like how quick he is with everything and how sharp he is. That, um, I mean, th- this was a good you're not gonna find uh, Danny. I don't. You won't find many WWF shows in history that have two matches of this quality on them. Danny, Danny I mean, Danny. yeah, no, sorry. I mean, to 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 this memorable. No, I think work rate rise nowadays. Yeah, you maybe get a lot of guys that are going. You get a lot of shows that are going to go out there, and you'll see three. Four, four and a half star matches, but uh, they're not the kind of matches that you're going to remember necessarily a year later, let alone 28 years later. Okay, so um, I'm, I'm going to give Jason a chance to give his closing thoughts. Danny, I'm going to put you on the spot and give you a little bit of homework right now because Jason and I have picked. I want you to pick the next show that we watch. So you, I'm going to give you a few minutes. Think about it. I'll let you know what we've watched so far. So you know we did the SummerSlam 92. We've so far I've recapped WrestleMania's three, four, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, thirteen, fourteen. Oh, we're doing Mania five next. Easy. Perfect. There we go. We don't even have to think about it again. So so you you already got yours out of the way. So let's get some closing thoughts from Jason and then from Danny. Uh, again, I, I've said it five times, but to me, the atmosphere of this event is what makes it really, really special. Mm-hmm. The location, uh, the lighting the, too, because it, it's like everything about it, yeah. it, it, it's, it's evening time. It's the summer. It, it's a perfect night out. Like there's just, there's so many things aesthetically pleasing about it. Like I said, I mean, even stuff down to the long Iowa walk, all that kind of stuff to me just makes an enjoyable show. And, um, you know, there's some important matches, there's some not important matches, but to me, the aesthetic and the crowd and everything is what really, uh, makes this one stick out. Like there are very few SummerSlams where you can say, oh, SummerSlam 97. And, and I'm like, know. uh, but I know SummerSlam 92. It's and like I, you said like, about I'll... the tournament. You know, it's, yeah. like, it's yep. like there's there's certain shows you just say or like when, you know, you, there's like you can instantly know which one we're talking about. Yeah. And, and this is one of them. Yep. So for me, it's just a kind of a weird show in a lot of ways. It's uh, as you mentioned earlier, it's the first of the, uh, you know, post-Hogan era, even even though Hogan would uh, yeah, still be around a little longer after this, in a era where you were just, it was always babyface versus heel, you had a heel versus heel matchup, and then two uh, big babyface yeah. versus babyface matchups, and uh, yeah, that was something you never saw back then, let alone three matches like that on one card, you know, so I, I don't know what their thought process was behind it. Um, the show taped two days earlier and or a day earlier and shown on a shown on pay-per-view after the fact uh, Could you imagine in this day and age oh uh, in this day and age it took them 28 years uh, but yeah we we had a taped uh, wrestlemania this year so it took them <laughs> that right. long so i i don't think it, i don't know if there's been any show in between them that's uh that's had that so a l- little bit of trivia but 
Yeah, no, this is uh, a, a great show, all-time crowd, but uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of unique features to it. Yeah, I'm glad this was a great call, Jason. I'm I'm, I'm glad. And and the the ones that you you've picked so far, Jason, have been good in that. Like this, I think of the three that we've talked about. This was the best of the shows as far as like the quality of the shows. But the ones that I like that you pick out are definitely memorable, and you can see with with what you say about the crowd and the ambiance and the experience. And that's kind of what we got with WrestleMania four, with WrestleMania nine, and now with uh, with SummerSlam ninety two. So homework for the both of you fellas. Uh, um, we'll link back up in uh, in uh, in the next week or two. I'll try to figure out a good time and and let's shoot for early one of the next couple weeks. WrestleMania five. Jason Beam, give us uh, the information. Let us know about the podcast where we can find you online. Yeah, just Jason Beam Horse Racing Podcast to inspire uh, wherever you get your uh, your podcast. I will say, Gino, we can't do Monday the eighteenth. It's my birthday. I'm not oh, I'm not happy, doing a, I'm not doing happy, a wrestling podcast. No, on my fortieth birthday. Happy early birthday and a big one too. Oh up. man, cool. Gino, I'm washing out. This is it's a it's, tra- it's, it's it's traumatic, man. Like uh, you know you know the thing I've been focusing on the most is whenever they show the. Uh, people who get sick with COVID, they break it down by 30 to 39, 40 to 40. The 40 to 49 group is always way higher. Way worse. And, I, and, I, and I'm a, I still got two weeks of not being in that. So I'm You're just like, don't put me in it. there, please. Don't oh, put me in there. No. The worst. The, getting old's the worst. You, you guys are you guys are young pups. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, I thought you were like 32. I, I got a few years on you, buddy. Oh, never mind. Okay. Um. Derby Danny, where can we find you if we want to get uh, good stuff about cats and uh, silly horse racing stuff here and there? Yeah, no, follow me on Twitter, uh, at Derby Danny K. You will uh, know everything that's going on with my cats at all times, and depending on how brave I'm feeling, you might also get some great uh, racing content. Nice. Well, Danny, one of my favorite things that we ever did uh, at TVG that I know you loved was that Cat Tucky Derby that we did. Where uh, <laughs> I had to call that one, so that was a ton of fun. Uh, fellas, oh, this you, is- you killed it with that also. I was going to say that's some of my best work. That really was some of my best work. I'm, I'm very you know, proud. We were, ta- we were talking about you. Uh, uh, Alan Dinkinson's in my nightly Zoom chat. Nice. And uh, we have a bunch of, you know, better types from Vegas and stuff. And uh, they were talking, uh, he was talking about how you did a great job as his uh, PNG or PGW or whatever yeah. it was, uh, his ring announcer. Yeah. And he was, uh, he, quintessential. He was, yeah. Yeah. He, he, he said, you did, he goes, Gino did it. He took it very serious. He did a great job. I wore my suit all the yeah. time, I, like everything. I went and talked to all the wrestlers before and made sure how do they want me to inter- introduce them? What do you want me to say about you? Is there anything I can do? And then one of the times, um, Joey Ryan, who you, you probably know who he is now. He's the guy yeah, that does yeah. the, the weird penis plex thing. He's got the guy that's like his his gimmick is like a 70s porn star kind of dude with the with the, the baby oil. He's got the creepy mustache and all that stuff. And he um, he he was kind of like the booker of the show too. Like he would, you know. And so I'm sitting there in the back as we're getting ready, and uh, everyone's getting ready, and I'm sitting down next to him, and he starts saying, "Okay, hey, uh, let me lay out the card for you, just so you know. Okay, here's the match, blah blah blah." And so and so is going over, and my eyes are like opening up. I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" I'm like behind behind the door. I'm like, "No, he's gonna win all the matches now, you know, because I gotta I gotta introduce them, and, and I gotta know what the results are." And then he says, hey, do you mind if I can, like, uh, I want to go, like, super heel on this show, so can I, like, mess around with you a little bit? I was like, you can do anything you want to me. I've been waiting for this for my whole life. So he, like, later on, and so, like, kind of pulls my glasses off my head and kind of pushes me into the corner and puts my glasses on and kind of makes fun of my voice and stuff. I was like, yes, I'm a part of the show. I was so excited. <laughs> it was like a dream come true. So uh, I think I did. A couple shows for uh, for Dink in Vegas, and then they were they did a bunch of them right in Monrovia, like five minutes away from Santa Anita Racetrack, which was, I mean, 
Kevin Owens, um, saw Sami Zayn, Shayna Baszler was in a bunch of them, um, Ruby Riot, who's now there, um, Cassius Ono, I mean, Cassius Ono, Johnny Gargano. There were just a ton of, of wrestlers who, it's kind of like you go to watch the minor league games, you know, and then you yeah. see them come up and you feel like, man, I was a part of that. So, uh, it's cool, man. Tell Dink I said hello when you talked to him. Yeah. Jason Beam, Danny K, homework on the table for us next. WrestleMania Five. We'll uh, we'll link all up together and see when's a good time. Thanks again, fellas. I appreciate you taking some of your time out. And you know what? The numbers are doing really good on these shows. I think people, just like us, they don't have a whole lot to do, and people love the nostalgia of going back and watching some of these old wrestling. Man, it, it was really popular at the time, and uh, it's always fun talking to wrestling with your buddies. So thanks, Jason. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, guys. Good doing it. Okay, uh, don't go anywhere. We're gonna take a quick break. We're here from one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back on That's What G Said. A big thank you to Danny and to Jason for hanging out and talking some wrestling with me. You can see uh, we have a good time. And right now there's not a lot of live sports going on, so it's always fun to to go back in time and uh, relive the moments when, when you were a kid and everything seemed that much more important, right, in the in the world of wrestling. So thanks for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review anywhere you get your podcast. Help to share the show around if you can. We'll be back in uh, just a couple days with another episode that will focus in on weekend racing. We'll talk a little bit about um, billions and any other uh, big or important news in the world of sports and pop culture. Thanks, folks. Talk soon. Here's Joey.